This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good morning, friends, and happy post-Super Bowl Sunday to you. You didn't call in sick. I didn't. Good for you. I didn't do it. Yeah, no, I uh, I feel a little weird, I'll tell you. Really? But I don't know, I don't know if it's just, you know, overcoming Super Bowl Sunday. You know, know. you know it would be horrible what? if you had you have all these people calling in sick. Yeah. What if somebody called in sick, they weren't sick and they didn't watch the Super Bowl? Oh, what kind of person? That's just selfish. Well, I mean, or that's like it's just sick. That's like if you're capable of growing a full head of hair and you shave your head, <laughs> what is wrong with you? You're a tease. You're a tease. <laughs> You're a hair tease. Uh, it was a great game. If you didn't watch the game, you missed a doozy. Um, if Really, I, I was enthralled because I did not. I was voting for the Eagles, fighting for them, didn't quite believe they could do it. Really? But, well, part of it is because I didn't watch a lot of Eagles games this year. Okay. But they were good. Man, they were good. With their backup quarterback. Yeah, that's got to be. So what happens to him now? Is he is he on contract long term with them? Well, long term for the NFL, might have a year or two left. But it's backup quarterbacks. You go in and have a wonderful showing, and then you, you'll end up on another team because they'll see your performance and go, "Wow!" And then you show up to the other team, yeah. and yeah, most of the time they don't perform as quite as well as they mm. do. Uh, it's interesting. Uh, Brigham Young University had Kyle Vanoy, who was playing on the Patriots, mm-hmm. and. He did a great job. It just wasn't a big defensive day. It was what, an offensive day. What position does he play? Linebacker. And that's the guy oh, that... He, has, uh, he had the first tackle of the game, I think. Stands in the back of the line? How do, who is the uh, linebacker? He stands kind of in the middle of the field and then kind of tries to stop the running backs and break through the line. And Was he like a first-string player or was yeah. he... Oh, wow. Started. That's awesome. Bad to the bone. First tackle. Did you see that little neck tackle? The, the running back for the Eagles ran. First play of the game from yeah. scrimmage was, a, I think, a nice little run. Oh. And Vanoy... I may have been eating pizza. I'm not sure. Neck tackled. <laughs> it, was, it was just a great game. But um, First plays of the game, I usually don't pay attention because... Why? Yeah. They're all getting settled in. Yeah. I mean, there was field goals traded. The Eagles had a touchdown. I think they missed the extra point. Is that how that worked? Yeah. So. That was weird. 41-33 was the final score. Yep. And we didn't talk about this last hour, but I don't I can't believe we really didn't. Justin Timberlake. What about him? What do you think? My he, the, the ladies, I was I was with a lot of women last night. Right. They loved it. Really? They, they wow. were enthralled and then he pulls out the little trolls number. Yeah. Well, oh yeah. All the you got to hit go with crazy. you got to end with the crowd pleaser. That was beautiful. I was telling you in the in the break we uh me and my – I was at my brother's house. His wife, my wife were all watching this and then they, all the kids are in the basement. And once they kicked into the troll song, my wife yelled for the kids to come upstairs and then there's five, six kids bouncing <laughs> around the house going nuts. Because that's the song they know yeah. from the movie. All the other songs we were like, all right, that's – okay. He was very safe. Didn't yeah. take any very risks. Safe. Did he use the hologram of Prince or no the, hologram? There was a hologram of was Prince. It, it, was, it was more of a – They had a sheet and they projected yeah. a picture They wanted a real hologram But it wasn't like a Prince. performing hologram. No. No. Okay. no, it was him, I think, singing – It was sort of like a duet with yeah. 
Prince. But apparently that created some problems. Some people were mad that he did that for some why? reason. Why? Now, why? Oh, oh, because Prince distinctly didn't want anything like that done. Oh. Right. So but, it was against But he wishes. still gets paid. His estate still gets yeah. paid, right? Right. They, maybe they just wanted to be paid more. But they did then, too, light up, uh, and I don't know how that worked, but... Computers, it wasn't real. Oh, it wasn't real? Minnesota did not turn purple, and they didn't drop the, the Prince symbol on this Minneapolis. It oh, they a, didn't do the whole city of Minneapolis. It was a computer. But, Isn't yeah. it disappointing when somebody just opens up that curtain and you see all the secrets? Yeah, there's some... Director truck back there, yeah. and a bunch of people are pushing like, buttons. Ooh, the stadium's purple. Now the city's purple. Yeah. <laughs> that would have been cool. So he took no risks. Yeah. And as, I, as online reviews were saying, the only risk he took was in his wardrobe. Yeah. As he was wearing some gray, white. It was like mix, ca- it, it looks like other. camo. Yeah. It was like a T-shirt. It was a shirt and I pants. I think it was camo. But for middle Americans, that's that looked great. Like the it was fine. The, the the all the states where everyone's. I mean, fifty percent of the people love hunting and now he's got a fishing new, and he's got a new video out. And I was worried he was going to try to bring this song into it. It just came out like the last couple of days, but it's called "Man in the Woods." Oh yeah, because he just has a new album he put out just the other day to coincide with him being on the Super Bowl. So "Man in the Woods," but it's 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 him talking about him and his wife. Hmm. And then he like reaches into the camera because the whole time he's talking to the camera. Oh, and then halfway through he reaches in and pulls his wife like from the camera. Oh wow, for then... real, like Jessica Biel. Yeah, yeah. Oh, good. So for it's him. it's an, it's an interesting approach to a video. It's a very odd choice for him because it's not something you normally see him do. Yeah, and it's kind of comical. There's like things falling down and some no end sync at the no, halftime show. Oh, that's that. disappointing. Yeah, it was. Um... There was actually no other artists. It wasn't like Other than well, Pink and Pink, Pink well, sang Prince the national there. anthem. Apparently, and th- she had the flu. Yeah, she wasn't feeling. By the way, I totally get how she feels. And then right before she started, she like looked like she pulled out gum. Might have been like yeah, a lozenge was a, or something. Yeah, yeah. and uh, that was kind of funny. Like, the, oh, <laughs> that, national moment. <laughs> Something's in your mouth. Oops. The hard thing is they're just people, right? Yeah. And they are professionals, but but it's, the rest of us love to criticize, so yeah. we will. No, and I I think at nauseum. I, I love damaging. Pink. I mean, she's outrageous at times but she's super she, talented she did it pretty straight there yeah. was no like was over great. the top moments i was waiting for people to go nuts because she might have had some creative license with the yeah. national anthem trying she but, she and she said you know i had the flu for heaven's sakes what do you want me to do we actually got there a little early to the to the what to watch the game so that my wife could see pink she's going to go see her in concert later this year she she's really? a little excited about Pink's that she has got some great music I know I a lot of Pink. I, See, I know more Pink songs than I knew Justin Timberlake's. I can't name one of her songs. You can't? Well, there's a song about Mr. President hmm. Hmm. that she sang to George W. Bush, if you remember. Was it positive, negative? Mm-hmm. Okay. <laughs> it was both. <laughs> it depends what side you're on. Uh, but she she's great. But Justin, I wish I, had, I, wish I knew more of the, his songs. There's a thing. It's called um, YouTube. Now tell me about this. And then you can pair that with another service called Wikipedia, uh-huh. where if you look up his name and you click on discography, uh. then you click on singles and you can see all of his popular songs and put those into YouTube and listen to his songs. I'm telling you how to do this. Can't stop the feeling. Sounds you know, can't stop the feeling. That, that was the only sexy one I knew. Sexy back. Mm-mm. Do you know anybody with a sexy back? No, no, he's bringing it back as if it's oh, bringing it back. He's like making it great. By the again. way, that, I've seen a lot of hairy backs. I have, <sighs> I have that song. I have no idea how it's on my phone, but I have that song you just mentioned. I don't want to say the words. Wow. Oh. Even though they've already song been said on my 
on my phone, but I don't. Every time it comes on, I'm like, click. Interesting. I just don't. It doesn't ring my bell like other songs. There's a song called Ring Your Bell. It's from I would sing that when I was on my mission trip and we we were going knocking on people's door. But it was the old disco ring my bell. Oh, you can ring my bell. Yeah. So Doc, if, Dr. If any of Dr. You, Dr. Dre remixed it. If any of you out there in listener land were wondering what the LDS okay. missionaries are we're doing on their it. way to your door. <laughs> well, you got to do something to, to keep song. up morale and keep in your Russian. spirits up. Yeah. So that was pretty exciting. Uh, plus some really interesting ads. Not as many as I thought. Mm. Um, and if you if you are saying, why aren't we I, talking politics? I let's like, just let you know Nikki Haley loved the halftime show. Yeah, she thought it was great. <laughs> After the Grammys and she complained. Yeah. Uh, the Tide ads were interesting. Yeah. He just sort of just kept popping up all over the place going, it's a Tide ad. And Who, then moved wait, on. Wait, who is he? The guy from uh, Stranger Things. The, the cop. Oh, David Harbour? There you go. So he, he yeah. was – and it was like – it wasn't just one 30-second. No. It was like – they were like 10 seconds, some were 30, and they just were inter- – all throughout the entire broadcast. Well, and He then, just would pop up and go, it's a tight ad. Then the old on. Spice guy was on one of them with him. He was on a the, horse that was yeah. too long. <laughs> They're like a double he, He's double a football horse. player himself, right? I have no idea. Is he still doing those ads? He was he did a Tide ad, but almost in the persona of the men in or the it, old spice. Is guy. it the original old spice guy? That, I think it I'm is. on a horse. I think it, no, and he was on a horse. They were on a horse at one point. Yeah, but he's it was a, a former double cedar horse. He's oh. a former football player. Was he? There's a lot of that out there, uh, and it's fitting because it was a football game. Hey, let's get to the headlines with Terry. Anything else, Terry? We should be paying attention to. A week after Republicans on the House Intelligence Committee voted along party lines to release the classified memo compiled for Representative David Nunez of California and not release the classified rebuttal written for the committee's top Democrat uh, Republican or uh, Republican uh, no Representative Adam Schiff to Democrat Schiff is pushing for a do-over today. Hopefully this evening, the Mm. four-page Nunez memos purports to show that the FBI improperly omitted the political origins of a dossier used to obtain a FISA warrant to surveil surveil former Trump campaign advisor Carter Page. It's all confusing, right? The Democrat response is 10 pages. Oh, boy, that's a big... And it says it shoots down all the assertions made in the Republican document. Mm Mm-hmm. So they want that release. So even though Republicans blocked the Schiff memo last week, so they voted and they released the Republican memo, but they decided not to release the Democratic memo because, you know, why do we need that out there? the uh, they're, they're, even though they've done that, House Speaker Paul Ryan has suggested they, that he now favors releasing the Democrats' memo so long as any sensitive national security information is redacted. Okay. Which I don't know if the memo the memo the Republicans released went through the White House, but I don't know if anyone actually looked at it, like FBI, Justice Department, who usually does right. that kind of a right. screening, right. except they're the topic of the Republican memo. Where See, the Democratic memo, it's more they're being defended. Yeah. Well, so I and, don't know how all this works. Well, and apparently, it, in a weird way, it still will come down to the White House to decide yes. after five days if they want to release the Democrats. So the same memo. rules apply. The memo gets through the committee. Then it uh, then President Trump has five days to object. He signed off on releasing the Republican memo. And if he does, the full House could overrule him if he chooses to release yeah. the Democratic memo. Now, he said he would. But people, you know, things change, like, in a blink of an eye. So well, that could get blocked because, you know, it's not really supporting the narrative. That By the way, wants. does this not say exactly what we all think? It says that this is politics with our national security. Yes. 
which is what it already is. So why are we doing? Just this? release the memo. The memo is uh, again. They're saying there's more memos though. So there's not just one memo. They're saying there's memos across from various agencies. This Nunez guy from the, oh, I've got a memo. You've got a memo. So he says my memo's the, bigger than your these, memo. Uh, there's other memos, um, as many as maybe five, including the FBI, a broader Justice Department memo, a State Department memo, Holy and other cow. departments, all showing wrongdoing. Yeah. yeah. Republicans close to Nunez says there could be as many five additional memos reporting of wrongdoing. Others are saying this they they won't be released. They're not even thinking about it. But there's more memos. So. This seems like smokescreen. Uh-huh. Because meanwhile, Mueller's still mulling He's it over, doing his thing. Trucking along. And nobody knows exactly what Mueller knows. No. Not even these great supposed secret committees. Yeah. Right. Okay. But, but they all have memos. Yeah. And they all fight over the memos. With March 5th deadline looming for finding a legislative answer for people uh, with the DACA, yeah, and they're brought here as kids. They're not citizens, but do we send them back after 20 years? How does this work? Senators are reportedly considering a temporary fix that will put the issue off for another year. Oh, boy. According to Politico. That may be where we're headed because, you know, Congress is pretty dysfunctional, says uh, Senator Lindsey Graham. Yeah, it is. So this would be their way of dodging it through the 2018 election. calendar and Just election. Get it past the election. On Monday, Senator John McCain and Senator Chris Coons from Delaware, a Democrat from Delaware, plan to introduce a bipartisan immigration legislation that would give deferred action for childhood arrival recipients a pathway to citizenship, although political claims the approach is likely not to do the trick yeah. and to get voted down. The government partially shut down after Democrats insisted they couldn't agree on a budget unless DACA was addressed. With the budget deadline coming up again on Thursday of this week, Senator Dick Durbin told CNN, I don't see a government shutdown coming, but I do see a promise by Senator Mitch McConnell to finally bring this critical issue that affects the lives of hundreds of thousands of people in America, finally bringing it to a full debate. That's huh. that's where he goes. That's what we were looking for when there was a shutdown. We've achieved that goal. We're moving forward. Wow. So the whole point of the shutdown was just to get the debate? Or did they want to get something accomplished? Yeah, that's... What was the reason they shut the government down for 48 hours? That might not be a great reason to shut the government down. And now because everyone's they still scared. aren't having a debate, really. Now they're scared if you shut the government down, that's going to reflect badly on the election in yeah. November. Yeah. No, it will. I think what we all ought to do, let's not vote any incumbent back in Ooh. if they don't vote on some of this stuff before... 28 before november i like that no so, you're not saying pass something just yes or no vote on i something. want some votes just vote i want to know where people that. stand yeah you okay. gar- i can guarantee you if their jobs were on the line they would make yeah, it everyone happen. would vote yeah i mean and let, that's you know so you want no f- incumbent you want a functioning government is what you're talking about yeah oh, like well, old, i mean it's old school don't that get might me be wrong. too too much to ask for man <laughs> Oh, boy. And finally, researchers have identified the ruins of more than 60,000 houses, palaces, elevated highways, and other human-made features that have been hidden for centuries under the jungles of northern Guatemala. Really? Using, it's called LIDAR, which is light detection and ranging. It's... It's it's radar, basically. Scholars digitally removed the tree canopy from aerial images of the now unpopulated landscape, revealing the ruins of sprawling pre-Columbian civilization that was far more complex mm. and interconnected than most Mayan specialists had 
opposed or supposed. Central America supported an advanced civilization that was at its peak some 1,200 years ago, more comparable to sophisticated cultures such as ancient Greece or China than to the scattered and sparsely populated city-states that ground-based research had long suggested. So they ah. thought it was this other situation, but they're actually big cities, that, big populations. Can you imagine like uncovering that and it, hacking away at all the vines and the weeds and the covered-up? LIDAR images show raised highways connecting urban centers and quarries, complex irrigation and uh, terracing systems supporting intensive agriculture capable of feeding massive workers, yeah. population estimates for the Mayan civilization peak, this would be A.D. 250 through 900, hmm. were around 5 million. New data shows there may have been 10 to 15 million, including many low-lying swampy areas that looked uninhabitable but have structures now that they've been able to find them. Ooh. The thing that supports them is the LIDAR takes the, the, the foliage and stuff away, and then they go on the ground, and there's a National Geographic actually has a show on this. It's Tuesday night? Mm, somebody so, yeah, hit a nerve. Got it set up. But it's got like a, a guy standing there with an iPad, and he's got like some uh, uh, like uh, virtual reality type. Yeah, um, like an app. Augmented reality, yeah. it's an app, and they load all the data they pull from the radar system they're using, and then he's, like, spanning the jungle, and you see a hill covered in green, but then in the LIDAR, it shows, like, a, a temple, temple pyramid-looking like pyramid. building, and he goes, look at all this, and you just pan it around. There's, he's surrounded by buildings, but when he pulls it down, yeah. you look around, it's trees and just, like, no, big mounds of grass. No, that's how it was in Cancun, mm. too, and then they, they have to just slowly clean it out and then all of a sudden you've got these incredible pyramids so now they have sixty thousand structures they have to go look now, around and uh, see what's there see they're ruining a good word lidar i've told my children i have lidar which is where i can detect their lies oh yeah mm. and now i've got to explain and i can also detect when there's a city hidden away in a hill it's interesting because it doesn't seem to work whenever i do mat libs with you which we mm. have coming up here oh really mm-hmm. well because yeah well you're a great liar <laughs> and I mean that in the best way possible. Okay, so let's get to the little uh, Matt lives, little like I'm not trying to demean it. Let's get – try to stump me. Okay. If you can. No, you can say little Matt lives because then, you know, it will just make it seem like you are little. It's uh, totally So true. I'm going to give you the sentence here, the okay. first – the headline of, your, of the story. Yes. And uh, you tell me which is the correct – let me grab a napkin to write on. An Alabama man is facing a domestic violence charge after a disagreement with his brother over yes. A, and there are only five choices this oh, time. Good. So we're, we're getting, getting a little yeah. easier. A, a piece of cheesecake. Okay. B, the new Solo trailer. Okay. C, Marvel versus DC. Oh, Okay. D, DACA, or E, the thermostat. Okay. What what city are we in again? This is Alabama. Alabama. Okay. So I am going to go with – I have two choices, and they seem obvious. Okay. Uh, But then what I will – I'm going to choose uh, (laughs) A – Cheesecake. That is your final answer. Yes. You did it. Oh, cheesecake. Oh. Now, you know what my second answer would have been? What? 
thermostat. Thermostat. E. Be, but then I thought, okay, then I had to think, okay, so would he put it first or last? Mm. It couldn't have been solo because that was totally in your head and Terry's head. Manual or uh, Marvel versus DC Comics, that's totally Terry conversation. DACA is something that no one fights about except in real life. Okay. <laughs> uh, so it had to be thermostat. Cheesecake, yeah. So here are the rest of the story. Yeah. Uh-huh. Police Chief Toby Banks was called to a disturbance at a residence where the half-brothers lived together. Banks said he was asked for his opinion on whether the piece of cake was big enough for a grown man. Hmm. He said he thought it was. According to court records, the older brother, 24, was still holding the butcher knife he used to cut the dessert when they began arguing about the portion size. Oh, boy. The victim told police his brother punched him in the face and busted his lip. According to the police report, the suspect told the chief they were arguing over the pie, but he only patted the victim on the face and head like a dog. Wow. Who needs a butcher knife to cut cheesecake? It's, I mean, it's very easy to cut through cheesecake. Yeah, it is. And who, who even needs to cut it? I mean, just start eating it. Yeah. I don't see the need for a knife at all. Here's another quick one. Yeah. What's the weirdest thing you've ever dropped off at a, a Goodwill store or a thrift store of any kind mm. that you've ever dropped off? Um, a child. <laughs> okay. <laughs> to go in and buy a bowling ball. Hmm. My son buys bowling balls. So what's the weirdest thing you've ever seen in a, in a thrift store? Mm. Just, I don't know, like everything that's ever been as seen on TV. Okay. Those kind of <laughs> yeah. things. I think the weirdest thing we dropped off was an entertainment center that we had purchased from that same thrift store that when we rolled it back home, discovered it was infested with termites. So we just walked it right back. Oh, By the man. way, imagine That's all the horrible. horns that we had on the way to the thrift yeah. store as we we're wheeling this thing back Ugh. instead of hauling yeah. it back. Mm-hmm. Anyway, authorities say a grenade launcher loaded with a no live way. grenade yeah. was left with other donated items at a Florida Goodwill store. So the employees uh, at the store reported the weapon Sunday The Manatee County Sheriff's Office says the store manager told deputies that the grenade launcher had come in a shipment from another store several days earlier. The employees at the other location said they sent it along because they didn't know what it was. (laughs) Ah, just give it to the Tampa store. They'll take it. Uh, Deputies say they disposed of the active grenade in a hazmat locker, and the launcher was stored in the agency's er, uh, property room. It's not clear who donated the items. However, there is an update on this story. Turns out that this grenade launcher and uh, grenade that had to be stored in the hazmat locker was actually just a toy. Ooh. Yeah. Not a real grenade launcher. So all those all that time and all those resources you, and it was just a toy. Where do they have grenade launching toys? I don't know. Usually you're supposed to like paint it orange yeah, on right. the end so that people know that it's fake. Oh. Oh. It's, if it's it's made by airsoft. I get it. Boy, that that grenade that you hit me with, it didn't even pierce my body and blow me up. Wouldn't a good indicator be that you put it on your shoulder and uh Yeah. Wait, I'm thinking of a rocket launcher. Wouldn't I mean wouldn't the the lack of heft heft, yeah. You think wouldn't, it, wouldn't you, that clue you be, in? Yeah, but maybe it was. Anyway, I, mean, I don't know, those airsoft things, they look pretty real. Crazy. Well, luckily they dodged another one there. 
Uh, hey, no pun intended, by the way. <laughs> pun actually intended. Um, hey, up next, we're going to be talking about coworkers and why why it might be more important than you think to have coworkers around. It actually may help you feel less lonely. I guess it depends on the coworkers, right? More straight ahead. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you be the good in the world. Question. What kind of bear is best? It's a ridiculous question. False. Black bear. Well, that's debatable. There are basically two schools of thought. Fact. Bears eat beets. Bears. You gotta love the office. See, this is why we all need coworkers around, right? Well, one of the workplace trends that is more common now than ever is working remotely. Although it can be a great way of cutting costs, it also brings with it its share of problems. Recent studies show that remote workers are often lonely, and this in turn hurts their productivity. In order to combat the challenges of remote work, employees are beginning to turn to co-working as a solution. Here to speak with us today about the ins and outs of co-working is Steve King, a partner and researcher at Emergent Research. Steve, thank you so much for being with us today. Thanks for having me. So co-working is this term. Now, we used to talk about our co-worker, but now explain to us what co-working is. Co-working is a facility that is sort of is a shared office environment. It's kind of like a gym membership, uh, a variety of people from different companies, independent workers, freelancers, startups. They come together, and, and the industry calls it working alone together because most of the people aren't directly connected from a business standpoint, but they're sharing an office space. And so the office space provides a desk and Internet access and printers, um, and the people there work on their own projects but also work together. That's interesting. And I guess they um, they probably create a camaraderie. They they probably have a clown, somebody that is playing the practical jokes. I mean, do people go in and fill those normal roles just by nature? Uh, they do fill those normal roles by nature. But on top of that, there are people called community managers that work at most co-working spaces. And their job is to connect people within the spaces, both socially and from a business relationship standpoint, um, drive activities. Uh, they have lunches. They have parties. They have after work get-togethers, they play sports together, soccer. And so they actually have people whose job it is, is to make the community function better uh, for the members. Like a crew, It's like a cruise director. Almost, almost. It's a very difficult job, actually. Yeah. You've, got to, you've got to learn how to, how to be social with all the people, but also know that they're also there to get work done. And it's, it seems strange because people were so excited, it sounds like, to work remotely because they wanted – you know, the benefits of uh, being at home, maybe being having more flexible time, working when and how they want to work. So uh, what finally drove people to, to get to this extreme now where we need co-working locations? Well, there's, there's three big problems that always come up, and we've done a lot of research with remote workers and people that work from home. And the big one we're talking about today is loneliness, but, but two others are it's, easily to be, it's easy to get distracted. Um, we hear that all the time, very hard to stay focused on their work. And, and um, oftentimes it's also uh, hard to be motivated, yeah. which is related. And so, so people find that when they go into a co-working space, the distractions go away. They, they don't have to walk the dog. They don't have to do the laundry. 
if they have kids around, the kids aren't in the way. But on top of that, being with like-minded people who are focused on work gets them more motivated. That's interesting. So they um, – even, even, by the way, I guess your research says even if they're not in your same field, even if they're not doing your same job. That's correct. And a lot, a lot of the benefit actually comes from meeting people that aren't in, in your exact field. And so um, you find out things that you don't know. And what you don't know you don't know is often the thing that bites you in work. And so having people with different perspectives, uh, different areas, fields of expertise, suddenly as a group you're stronger. That's interesting. Does it, did, you, did you get any data of if it's actually better and if it's more synergistic to actually work with people that aren't of your group versus working just back at your office? Um, it's, th- there's a fair amount of data that shows mixed groups of, by experience and as well as, as by ethnic and cultural makeup, male, female, um, the, the more diverse the group is, the more likely they are to uncover new ideas. There's, there's a fair amount of research that has shown that. Um, and so, and so getting out and meeting new people meeting new things, getting exposed to new ideas, getting exposed to different perspectives, definitely leads to more innovation. And a lot of large corporations now are moving their innovation teams into co-working spaces, primarily because it gets them exposed to the other people working in those spaces. Hmm. Is it, um, it's got to be good for networking as well. It is, it is. Uh, and and the data, the data supports that. Um, we, uh, we found that about 82% of the members who we've surveyed over the years tell us that it has expanded their business networks. Um, the interesting thing about our loneliness research is we, we went at it to study business networks, and we found that business networks expanded. But in the research, we found that people's social networks expanded even more. Mm. Does um... – this just seems so counterintuitive. Like we used to have everybody in the office, then everybody wanted the freedom to go kind of have their remote uh, access and and work remotely. And now we're finding out that it's causing loneliness. Talk about the loneliness epidemic side of this. What? Uh, why is lonely so dangerous? Lonely is dangerous because lonely hurts your health. And there's been a number of studies that show both your you're much more likely to get sick and you're much more likely to actually die younger if you're lonely and or socially isolated. Those are actually two different things. Social isolation means you're not exposed to a lot of people on a regular basis. Loneliness is actually the perception that you're alone. Um, And it's interesting, you can be socially isolated and not be lonely and you can be lonely and not be socially isolated. But both actually hurt your health um, and if and if you have if you are both if you're both isolated and lonely, there's even a greater risk to your health. Mm. And interestingly enough, I, I, by coincidence or maybe not, you'll have to tell me. Uh, most some of the leading research yeah. on this comes out of the BYU Social Connections and Health Lab. Right. No. In fact, we've talked about it a lot here, and they even talk about the fact it's like it's the equivalent of smoking. I can't remember like two packs of cigarettes a day on your health. Yeah. Or or or. or uh, a fairly high level of obesity. Yeah, isn't that interesting? So this lonely, um, it, but it, it's it's being lonely. Lonely is one thing, but also being socially isolated. But the combination of the two um, really dangerous. Really dangerous, and and so 
And so what happens is we, we've wanted to work remotely because we want the flexibility, autonomy, and control that's associated with that. Um, but as we worked remotely, we discover these other problems. And the interesting thing about most co-working members only spend about half their work day um, across a full week in a co-working space. They also work from home. They okay. also, they also um, work from coffee shops. They also are mobile. And so they're, they're not at that office full time. They're, they're, they take advantage of also the the advantages of working from home, which is you can be in your pajamas as I am right now. <laughs> Isn't that great? Oh, yeah. I wish they'd let me do that, but I'm, I have to be here. Um, but I guess I could be here in my pajamas. Again, we're talking with Steve King, and Steve is a partner at Emergent Research, and they study the independent workforce and the impact of big data on small business. He has extensive consulting, marketing, and general management experience with uh, a lot of companies. But Steve, talk about what's the future of this then? And what are what are our corporations now saying? Is it time to like bring everyone back in because of this data? No, no. I, I, some corp- there, there are more corporations bringing certain people back in because we, we do do better in teams when it comes to innovation. And driving innovation is an important part of any corporation now. So so we're seeing companies build campuses where they are bringing people back in, but they're building different types of campuses that are more focused on social spaces and interaction, active spaces, and less the old cube farms that, that we're used to and everybody in a row. And so many of the, the uh, new buildings that you'll see at corporations look a lot like co-working spaces. They, they have a lot of social activities. They're built for interactivity. But at the same time, they're letting more and more of their workers work remotely. So you have both going on at the same time, which huh. is kind of interesting. That is. What got you into this field? What want, What made you and your organization uh, focus so deeply on this topic? Well, we're, a big big chunk of what we do is the future of work and what it means for small businesses and, and independent workers, freelancers, independent consultants, the self-employed. And we started looking at co-working spaces uh, a decade ago, and and we were trying to understand what the appeal was. And and um, I'm a home worker myself, as well as working out of a co-working space. And so we just kind of naturally tried to understand what was going on with that, particularly given the growth of remote work and the growth of mobile work. More more and more people spend at least some of their time working from home, and so we were tr- or, or working on the road in some form. And you can see it at coffee shops, uh, you know, or very popular places in my community. If I go to a coffee shop, half the people in the coffee shop are working. Hmm. And so, so we were just trying to understand as we become a more mobile workforce, as more people work remotely, what does that mean? And the good news is, you know, the freedom and flexibility and control are great. The bad news is the loneliness is a big problem. No, it really is. Do you see what other trends do you see? So, kind of mobile work. Uh, any other trends you see coming down uh, the road uh, when it comes to other opportunities or other changes we will see in how and where we work? Well, uh, automation and, and it often gets talked about in terms of an artificial intelligence AI. Um, the, the impact of that we believe is overstated, at least for the next decade or so. But work automation is happening at a very rapid place, mostly augmenting jobs. Um, so people that used to not use tools and not use 
uh, automation to help them or, or some form of computer-assisted help work. Um, that is changing very rapidly. More and more people are getting involved with automation. That is displacing some tools. So automation certainly, automation and AI is certainly a major factor on the future of work. The other thing, though, is is more simple. It's around demographics. Um, we're, we're aging fairly rapidly in the United States, less so than in other parts of the developed world. But but we're in a situation where you have multiple generations in the workforce. You have a lot of older workers staying in the workforce. And those demographic shifts uh, are having a pretty major impact on how work's conducted. That's that's interesting, too, where if, if the demographic may be aging, um, but a lot of the solutions will be technological, um, I guess they could still – the aging population could still pick up on some of this technology to stay active in the workplace while still having some form of a life. Yeah, and, and part of that is everybody has to become lifelong learners because things are changing rapidly. And so even older people have to learn how to use at least some of the technology. But younger people um, have to are facing a world where – they are going to have multiple jobs and even multiple careers during their their life, as opposed to most baby boomers had four to five jobs throughout their their career, um, and mostly stayed in the same industry and or same profession. Uh, people coming out of college now, they're going to be shifting a lot throughout their careers, and so lifelong learnings become very important. Mm. And it seems like this, this, a lot of this seems tied to, to kind of the positive psychology movement, also the kind of the big push on happiness uh, and uh, that's connected to workplace productivity. I guess in the end, um, are these people happier that are able to, to uh, associate in a co-working environment? Independent workers in general are happier than traditional employees with their work. And members of co-working spaces tend to be happier than independent workers in general. So, yes, uh, uh, the, the data shows that the co-working members uh, report higher levels of happiness. Um, happiness is a really squishy subject. Yeah, it is. Study. I, you know, we're data people, and so we kind of cringe as we study happiness. And um, there's a lot of interesting work being done by happiness. Not surprisingly, the UC Berkeley has a happiness institute, um, and they've done some, some really good work on it. But, but it's a challenging thing to study. But, but so far, everything indicates that, yes, uh, co-working makes people happier, but they're happier because they're in a community with other people. Hmm. Um, humans, we're social creatures. We need to be around other humans. Yeah, no, absolutely. Uh, as we talk about this, one more question for you. Um, just what would you say is the one thing? So if, if I'm sitting at home and I have kind of remote uh, work opportunities where I'm out traveling around, what can I do if I start to feel that loneliness? What are some just some guidelines, some advice you give us that would that would help me make sure I am staying connected to the people that matter? Yeah, the first thing is don't let yourself become socially isolated. And and even if you don't, even if you're in a new town, there are there are coffee shops, and so immediately you can you can you you don't have to be socially isolated. The second level is um, find some form of community to be part of. That can be volunteer work. Um, that could be a church group of some sort. That could be uh, 
uh, any number of things. You can join a gym. Um, anything that reduces social isolation is going to help on that level. And then the second level, as I said, is with the community. Then you start to actually develop real relationships. And so even if, you're, if, if your work is isolating and make you lonely, find places where your non-work is not isolating and lonely. And then if you're in your work world, try to, try, try to just integrate more with other people. You know, my, there's enough people working remotely and working from home now. You know, in my town, there's a group of folks that, that ride bikes at lunch together. Hmm. There's another group that goes on walks. There's another group that meets every morning for breakfast or, or a couple times a week. And so find those groups of like-minded people and get involved with them. Good stuff. Good stuff. Well, Steve, thank you so much for your time and your insight and continue your great work there at Emergent Research, doing what they can to help us uh, all understand the importance of other people when it comes to our work life. Really, we can't get through it alone, folks. Uh, If we haven't learned that by now, eventually we will, I assume. Up next, we'll do a little Coach's Corner on how to connect people together. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you be connected. Coach would have put me in fourth quarter. We'd have been state champions. Because life doesn't come with a handbook, you need a coach. Here's Dr. Matt and his coaching corner. Play ball! Play ball, folks. So uh, how interesting is that where um, all of a sudden we we used to want to not have to go into work, but we wanted to be able to work from home. And then working from home, we're now finding out is actually disconnecting us, making us feel less of a part of the team, less of a, a member of the of the group. But, you know, we've got to be careful because then all of a sudden they're going to make us all come in. And ugh. But what this might also be suggesting to us is a lot of us aren't happy no matter what. Right. I mean, we we always seem to want something else. And I call that kind of the paradox of life when you finally have, you know, the wisdom uh, because you're, you, you know, you've lived a long time, you know, what's real, what's fake. And you finally get to this great stage in life where you're wise, then your health starts to fail. Or when you, why is it that, uh, when you have all the energy to live life, you don't have the money, but when you have the money, you don't always have the energy. And we always are just constantly, it feels like to me, wanting something we don't have. I do a lot of work, obviously, with couples, and I can't tell you how many times I talk to married couples that would just love to be single and single couple, single people that would love to be married, and ah, no one's happy. People that were, you know, really want kids, and then when they have kids, they're like, ah, these kids are so hard. It's just all of us. So there is a paradox going on, and it might simply be that maybe instead of, you know, rearranging everything in your life, um, maybe we ought to figure out first and foremost what we want in life. What are the essential things of our life? And there's a great book called Essentialism by Greg McKeon. We've had him on the show before, um, but I've been reading it a lot lately about what, what really matters. And a great question you can ask yourself Uh, To know what really matters is how much would you pay for this experience? So if you you would love to work more from home, how much would you pay to do it? 
What would you be willing to give up in order to work and have a more flexible schedule? Or if you have a flexible schedule, how much would you pay to actually get, and you're lonely, how much would you pay to get back to a work setting? Because again, it sounds like you could go now to one of these co-working locations where you'd probably have to pay, right? You got to pay for the service and pay for a place to have your office, but it might be helpful. How much would you pay to be able to start your own business? How much would you pay to be able to quit your business that you've started and just go get a really good, healthy job working for a company? Once I started asking myself that, I started realizing what I really would value enough to spend money on, and you realize not a lot. There's not a lot of things that I would just, you know, be willing to spend money on. Interestingly, though, maybe the problem is, isn't where we work, it's not how we work, it's not who we work with, but many of us just don't feel connected to what we're doing. We don't feel a passion or a purpose about what we're doing. And uh, at some point, that will probably catch up with you, right? If you're just trying to get your paycheck and that's how you see your job is just, hey, eight more years till I can retire, (laughs) that's... Ah, that's exhausting. And by the way, that would be hard to be alone if that's all you had going on in your workplace. So maybe another option for you would be see if you can't find a deeper purpose in what you're doing. Reconnect to a deeper a deeper connection, uh, maybe connect it into a higher plane of living, something that matters more to you. If you're a religious person or a spiritual person, maybe there's a way you could take the work you're doing every day and somehow create tie it into your your spiritual purpose in life. So you can actually say, you know what, I'm making a difference because I'm living my purpose. I'm living my mission. Wouldn't that be powerful enough? We've got to find something. It's not enough to just have a job anymore. We are here to be more than our job. We are here to connect, to give back to love, to learn, to do all of these things. And uh, it gets pretty lonely when we feel like we're not accomplishing our bigger purpose in life. Anyway, that's just my two cents worth. We'll continue the journey, folks, and continue learning together. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping us all be the good in the world. Welcome back. Again, it's time to hit our empty news segment with Jeffrey Liam Simpson. Jeffrey, what's going on? I thought this would be a good one because you've been talking about how you've had the flu. Yes. And uh, blaming it on me, I should add. (laughs) Uh, There's an Arizona woman who was hospitalized, or she is hospitalized, with a flesh-eating disease after being diagnosed with the flu. Uh Uh-oh. So, yeah, she thought uh, what she had was the flu, and uh, turns out, no, it's something called, it's an aggressive form of necrotizing fasciitis. Oh, yeah. You heard of this? I've heard of necrotizing and fasciitis. Okay. Uh, It's an extremely rare disease, but it's also very destructive. According to the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, the disease can lead to death in a short amount of time, and surgery is required to prevent it from spreading. People are more prone to serious infections when they're sick with the flu because one's immune system is weakened, said Dr. Frank Lavecchio, an emergency room physician. The flu doesn't cause necrotizing fasciitis. You're uh, many, many thousands of times more likely to get the flu this year than necrotizing fasciitis once in your lifetime. 
Uh, Lipinski, this is the woman, underwent two surgeries to remove 30% of her tissue, which had become infected due to the disease. So she's still uh, in critical condition. Not to make light of it, but you might want to go to the doctor and make sure that uh, you don't Uh, just have the flu. uh, No, I'm fine. My skin's pretty much staying intact. Nothing necrotizing there. But what a – you know, the way this country works – it's all going to talk. That's going to turn into a diet issue. That's going to be like become the next diet plan. Maybe it's going to be a lettuce issue again. No, maybe no. Terry's at no. risk. Oh boy, don't even get him worried. He wouldn't be able to eat a salad. That would tip over his whole life. Uh, that's that's sad. You start with a cold, and I've seen it. I have a friend suffering from cancer right now and going through radiation or chemotherapy, and mm. she's had the cold, the flu for a month. Amazing. It is scary when you have these sicknesses that for some reason or another, you just cannot shake. No, yeah. no matter what you it's do, you can't away. get rid of them. Yeah. But I'm glad you brought it to our office. I mean Again, in, you're blaming me, aren't you? I mean that in the best way possible. I, I, it hasn't hit me that hard. So I'm, I'm not, I shouldn't be, I'm not upset because it hasn't hit me that hard. Well, at least you're not getting it twice. No, that's true. It circled right back around and that's hit right. us again. That's right. That's how it works. Hey, that's hour number two of the program. If you uh, want to get any of our old uh, shows or older shows, you can go just Google us. Uh, go to Matt Townsend uh, Podcast. Go to BYU Radio. We're everywhere, folks. Go to iTunes, TuneIn, Stitcher, and check out some of our old segments as well. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you be the good in the world. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good morning, everybody. Happy Tuesday to you. Dr. Matt here along with Jeff and Terry. The gang is gathered. And boy, oh boy, I wish we could do something about the stock market. Can't we, though? I don't know that I can. I mean, it can is... Can have like a run on the banks or... No, probably ought not do that. Not stop buying stocks? No, I probably wouldn't stop that either. Hmm. Just fasten your seatbelts is what uh, is probably the only advice we can get. Only uh, 54% of the country is actually in the stock market, so... Yeah. That's higher than I thought. Well, but uh, but uh, the funny thing about just that 54%, there's there's a lot of money and a lot of future and a lot of jobs... And a lot of, uh, and then at the same, in the same time, yeah, a big number drop, but it, it's still pretty high. Yeah, and everyone's like, ah, it'll it'll come back because it always has. Yeah, until it doesn't. Until it doesn't. But then we'll just do a bailout. And And what would be fantastic is if we actually knew why it was happening. Bitcoin, Trump. Well, I mean, many are saying Trump. If Trump made it happen the first time, if he's the guy that was responsible for making it go up, is he the guy responsible for making it go down? You have to own it either way, right? If you're yeah. going to come out and say, this is all me, then you have to say, it's Wrong. all me. It just doesn't stop being your responsibility. Wrong. But when, in fact, the president has very little very to do little. with it. It has more to do with uh, you know, raising interest rates from the, the, the Federal Reserve and all that. Yeah. has a lot more influence than anything the president does. Well, and it may – I mean – Jobs were a lot of people were getting jobs. A lot of good news were com- was coming out, and now this is starting to impact a lot of that. the The uh, markets abroad are struggling as well. And since it's been about 
around 10% or so drop. It's more of a market correction yeah. than a just crash. But So this might just be the fact that maybe it was maybe overinflated, yep. and now it's dropped back it to correct. maybe reality you know a little what? bit. It's like a little burp. Yeah. It's just a burp. Sometimes you Did just, you want to demonstrate? Or? No, you, sometimes okay. you just got – there's gas, there's extra – He's all <coughs> – There's just extra gas and you just got to get a little burp out. Let me, Let me hand you this root beer. Yeah. <laughs> no, I'm good. Thanks though. It's uh, – no matter what's happening, it's – there is anxiousness. Did you uh, – our, our guest today is going to be talking about why, um, why justice is important mm-hmm. instead of just the rule of law. Right. And how contention is really good. Believe it or not, like we need all this discord that's going on politically. Does this work in all life or just certain situations? Because I kind of like contention. I just always get told that's maybe a bad thing. Well, you probably like it for a different reason. It's fun. (laughs) Um, But a survey conducted by the Harris Poll reports that what keeps Americans up at night is genuine political anxiety. Really? People are actually worried about the political world. This is what's keeping people awake. Rather than issues related to their work or their families, respondents said they were most worried about the future of the nation and the current social divisiveness. Isn't that crazy? Wow. And if you go back a month and see what was going on, you'll be amazed what was happening. Because right now, it doesn't matter. No, it never matters. <laughs> it's like it's just another week. Move on. But what Matt, what everyone seems to be worried about is they like it's so divisive. And hmm. this means the country is going to collapse because we can't have such division. And they probably heard somebody say that on a politically themed show. Yeah, probably. Because that's how you get people to watch a show is you cause anxiety for some reason. We are going to this. This world's the 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 world is falling apart. However, um, our guest today will be talking about the fact that now nah, this is actually pretty healthy. In fact, the, the, the least healthy part of our divisiveness is that there's, we're kind of only in broken into a few factions. If oh, we had hmm. more factions fighting against each other, it actually might even be healthier. So am I normal then if no. what keeps me up at night is maybe I ate too much chocolate or I've got restless legs? Yeah, that's probably it. Yeah. That, that's probably normal. That would be normal anxious restlessness. So I'm not not good for your wife either way. <laughs> your wife's hating it. <laughs> you with your shaky leg all night. Um, so anyway, tough tough uh, time on uh, Wall Street. Many people, you know, worried about it because it it means a lot of things down the road. Um, we uh, we got a lot of other headlines. Let's get to Terry. What else should we be paying attention to? Government shutdown possibly on Thursday. Oh, boy. Let's keep you up to date on that. Congress no closer to avoiding the government shutdown. The House will have a vote on a funding proposal sometime today. Interesting fact I read this morning. What? House seats held by Republicans generally have significantly lower foreign-born population than those held by Democrats. An yeah. indication of why the two parties are so far apart on immigration. Yeah, we can't get do- a DACA bill. A DACA because... bill, which shut the government down before, it may not have a big impact this time around. Huh. We may not be focusing on that. More of a military spending flavor to this one. Oh, let's. Oh, okay, great. <laughs> we'll talk about that great. later. So uh, yeah. So um, but this is, this uh, article starts out goes buckle up. Really? Yeah, yeah. Wall Street futures down across the board early Tuesday, so early today, but pointed to a third day of turmoil ahead of its 9:30 a.m. opening in New York. Mm. The shakiness comes a day after the Dow Jones Industrial Average posted its biggest one-day loss ever, plummeting 1,175 points. On fears of inflation, higher interest rates, as well as reaction to of computer-driven trading algorithms. Oh wow! Computers. 
There was also some stuff about Bitcoin and someone, a British uh, financier, calling it a Ponzi scheme, but... That might just have been a fun little anecdote. Yeah. Uh, overnight stock markets throughout Asia and Europe dropped dramatically on the new worries. Meanwhile, oh, it goes on. Bitcoin prices plummeted, falling below six thousand. Remember, they're almost up to twenty thousand a Bitcoin. Yeah, that was crazy. Mm. Now they're at six thousand. Why? Because regulators from the U.S. and elsewhere begin to clamor for more oversight over the cryptocurrency. Over a trillion dollars in wealth was lost yesterday across the globe. Wow. Uh, but funny thing, it's only held by. Really smart, techno-savvy people. Right. That's kind of weird. Yeah. A trillion dollars. Across the globe. Unbelievable. CNN reports the stock market falling, but still leaves the economy at a significantly higher level than it was when Trump took office. Yeah. Mm. It's been growing. Yeah. Thanks, President Trump. Uh, President Trump's lawyer want him to skip an interview with special counsel. Oh, before we go into that, yesterday Trump was in Ohio talking about the economy and how yeah. great it is. Yeah. As the uh, all the ne- news networks were cutting away from his speech to show that the stock market is plummeting. <laughs> oh no! <laughs> no one was saying, "Hey, yeah. by the way." The old split screen moment. He's like, "The He's... economy's great, jobs are great, stock market's up," and oh. then like in the corner, the ticker's just dying. So oh. maybe this is a sign he shouldn't be meeting with Mueller. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, this mm-hmm. says that his lawyers want him to skip an interview with special counsel. Robert Mueller, this out of the New York Times, Trump has claimed to be looking forward to the interview, but his lawyers reportedly worry that he'll make false statements, potentially opening him up to charges of lying to investigators. Refusing an interview could cast doubt on Trump's claims of being innocent of Russian collusion. If he refuses the interview, Mueller could also subpoena him to testify before a grand jury. Oh, boy. So look for a fight for that over the next few weeks. Have we ever had a president testify before a grand jury? I do not believe so. Maybe. I'm not sure. I'm not that sure where the Clinton incredible. situation yeah. went. I don't remember it being a grand jury. That seems like Ma- a pretty big deal. Maybe they did discuss the definition of is. Depends on Was what that the is, word? is. Yeah. I don't know if I paid attention to that time. House Intelligence Committee voted unanimously to release the Democratic rebuttal to the Republican memo released last week. Trump now has five days to decide if he'll block the release of the Democratic memo. Well, and they say he may not block it, but he may redact it so much it's unreadable. Right. Like, it, it, he'll take anything out that doesn't... Which, in effect, will be blocking it. Yeah. Nah, but he didn't block it. He'll let it... Right. I'll let you read it. It's just a bunch of black lines. <laughs> and finally, the Super Bowl numbers are in. The game averaged 103.4 million viewers, 2 million on the web, and 534,000 in Spanish on Universal or Universo. So whatever the Spanish. Universal. There you go. Only half um, a mil? Yeah. That's not very many. Wow. So NBC is citing a total of 106 million because they put in the... Uh, the streaming plus the Spanish plus yeah. theirs, they add all but that But the up. numbers are down? Um, so let's see. A 7% drop hmm. from uh, last year. Wow. But, I mean, everything has a 10% drop. So actually, they probably did better than the overall number across all of TV. Yeah. Right? It was such a great game. But it's another sign that the league's ratings have peaked. Sunday night's ranking ranked as the least watched Super Bowl since 2009. NBC reported their average of 2 million streaming viewers. That's the closest thing to a TV Rating number we'll have for web streaming, whatever they say, because the they way, have the rights. We right? can thank Jeff's family for that. Yeah, <laughs> it's another record uh, for that's a record for Super Bowl streaming. So every year, Super Bowl streaming gets bigger, gets bigger. and the overall number tends to drop a little oh, bit. Wow. Um, it says every year. I keep telling myself the next line. The Super Bowl record and record for any television event in the U.S. was the 114 million who watched the Patriots against the Seahawks in 2015. 
114, right? Sunday's game ranks the 10th most watched TV event in U.S. history. Wow. So really? it's down. It's the least watched since 2009. Still a pretty big event. But it's the 10th most in the history of all uh, the records. Now, the other issue is it counts the way Nielsen does it is they have an electronic box in people's homes. Yeah. And that counts as one. Right, but it may have but had. You could have ten people in a room watching. If you're yeah. watching at bars, restaurants, group meetings, That's anywhere, it. and so on Thursday, I read they're going to come out with an estimate for group watching. Hmm. How oh. in the world can they know no, to have you... any sort of number? And well, they get they get little counters to the pub people. They no, they go watch. They go count how many chips were sold. Oh, that's a great way. Bags of chips. Well, dogs, all of this is incorrect, pizza. but good idea, yeah. But I could eat a giant bag myself. I know, that's what's sick. Anyway. So, 100 mil, that's only about half of the, the number of people that watched the inauguration, if I remember correctly. No, there was, According I think to, there was 2 billion people that watched the last oh. inauguration. Mm-hmm. Was it 2 I trillion? I think almost the same amount of people watched the This Is Us episode after the Super Bowl that watched the inauguration. I think the numbers are almost the same. Wow. No, the funny thing is, is you even have a stat for that. That's 27 million. That's pretty pathetic. I read that this morning. You're, you're reading too much. No, it's just in the email I read. It was 27 million. Yeah, you're totally wasting I think they, they need to apologize to the Crockpot company. I'm just saying. Uh, so, th- by the way, do you want to bet the number of the actual watchers by group will be significantly more than any Super Bowl ever? They've got Maybe. they've got to find a way to get those numbers up. I read some speculation saying that the number probably won't even move. Oh, it will move. It's not sure. It's got to move, right? Cuz I watched it with No. Uh, 12 people in my house. Same thing happened last year. Number really didn't even move. They put out the similar yeah, guesstimation, I guess. So but, I don't But the funny thing is in order to save their marketing hide, they have to show progress. Mm. And this is regress. Well, the Olympics are coming up, too, and NBC has those, so they're going to see a real decline there. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But they'll tell you all about their streaming numbers. That's great. Well, I'm proud of their streaming. That's fantastic. Which they probably can't sell. You going to tune in to curling? Oh, yeah. By the way, don't make curling jokes because that's where Terry and his wife yeah. went on their first date. First date, curling. Like in a salon or the sport? Which is different than hurling, the by the way. <laughs> yeah. Hurling, a completely Mine was more sport. slipping and falling, but uh, sure, curling. Yep. You worked out. I mean, you had a you like were sweating. I heard. Well, no, I mean through that a, whole date, running an ice sheet. And... I know, but you kept trying. You kept falling, and you couldn't get up. Well, she thought it was funny. Yeah. So I bet people that are professional sweepers or sweep for a living would do really well at curling. Well, no, it's more targeted sweeping. And maybe yeah. you're trying to angle. Shape the ice. It's really kind of odd when they explain it. Um, speaking, you, you can see how people do it inebriated, but it's fine. Speaking <laughs> of targeted inebriated sweeping, okay. um, would you consider it treasonous for not clapping for the president during his address? Absolutely. No. Oh. Oh, wait. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> apparently, President Trump told a crowd in Cincinnati uh, Monday – that the Democrats were basically treasonous because they wouldn't stand and applaud. He said some have called it treasonous. He goes, what do you think? Do you think it's treason? It didn't look like they loved America to me. Yep. You're like, what's yeah. going on? Wow. He said they were like death and un-American. 
Un-American. Somebody said treasonous, president said. Yeah. I mean, he yeah, never names that I guess person. why not? Can, can we call that treasonous? Why not? I mean, they certainly didn't seem to love our country that much. Hmm. Ooh. Yeah. So Wow. He's watched these before, I hope. Yeah. He understands how, they, how this goes. But I think, yeah, but he, I think he thinks everything he says is, is so for the is, country. So is Marco Rubio partisan. a traitor? Because yeah. he didn't stand during some of the immigration discussion that Trump was having. Well, I think he's thinking more Pelosi. <coughs> Pelosi's a traitor. It's like saying if somebody well, doesn't like me, they must not like males. Good point. Mm. Yeah, it's probably true. Solid reasoning. Well, you remember yesterday we were talking about Trey Gowdy? Yeah. Republican from South Carolina, I think. Yep. Is that where he's from? Yeah. And so North Carolina. He's from North Carolina. He is stepping down. He's not going to run again. And he says it's because he can't play this political game of you have a different opinion, so you must be evil. Well, and yeah. He goes, I don't understand that. I have a lot of friends across the aisle. They have different opinions. Let's talk about it. And instead now, are they traitors because they didn't agree with me? Mm. Seems like it's a step too far. That's actually what we're talking about in our but first maybe, maybe it's the new way to be an American. Well, but it's not really American because what we're trying to do is just quickly shut down any conversation. So you go from Democrats not applauding the president's uh, political positions. Mm-hmm. He, they applauded a lot of things. The Democrats applauded any statement about soldiers and right. warriors. And I mean, I think they stood up for every one of his – uh, visitors, mm-hmm. right? But in the end, um, then if I don't stand up for everything you say, then I'm obviously a treasonous traitor. Right. I think the rule of That's thumb is you're, on, you're only allotted about five different claps. So you need to use them sparingly. Yeah. And it's tough to – in, in the, a speech that long, it's it's tough to choose when to right. shower you, them out. You don't want to use them early. You don't want to save them until the end. You want to – Yeah. You've you got you to make sure when the camera's on you, you're presenting the right message at that point. It's a very difficult time for everyone sitting in the audience. Really? Wow. Like Nancy Pelosi can't smile at certain things. She can't clap at certain things. And then you got Paul Ryan sitting behind. Paul Ryan sat back there with President Obama. Yeah. So President Obama's on the screen the whole time. Paul Ryan's in the corner. He has to be very strategic when, when he wasn't in, you know, in the power. Well, he, was, he had the Speaker of the House. Yeah. But you have the Democratic president saying things you don't agree with, but then all of a sudden he mentions soldiers. But what's the context? Do I stand here? Do I sit? And he he uh, had to uh, sit there on uh, camera. At least now everyone's out in the audience. Uh, can you imagine the pressure? Oh. Plus just the fact that you have to sit up straight for an hour and a half. You can't fall asleep? It's tough. You can't pull out your red vines? Those, I've seen that chamber. It is not a comfortable seat. No. Mm. Boy, that's a hard job. Hmm. <laughs> But tw- once a year, <laughs> once a year, he's so got to sit, sit there. Oh, it's ridiculous. And the sweat. Mm. Uh. It's more fun, though, when um, when it's kind of a divided, when you have a Republican and a Democrat sitting up there yeah. behind the president. Right. I think that's more fun. When you had Joe Biden sitting next to Paul Ryan. Yeah, because then you get to see, oh, which Who's standing, which one, who's sitting. Yeah, who seems more together. Right. What if you were just a slouch? What if you just couldn't put your act together? Your tie was popping out of your jacket. You're making this sound like family photo day. Like, seriously. It kind of is. Like, you, can you not be a disheveled, mussy hair? I mean, can you not 
what if you're just not put together? Hmm. That'd be bad. Then everyone would nitpick you. The, that's when you get the nosebleed section. What if you had a, like a major chest cold or a head cold and you're up there just hacking behind the president the whole time? That would be like then Giuliani's son oh, yeah, yeah. stealing all the attention. Mm. <laughs> I don't like that. I don't even like sitting on the stand at church. I couldn't imagine sitting. That was an old Saturday Night Live sketch, by the way. Chris what? Farley as Giuliani's son. I love that. Kind of jumping all over him. Well, even before that, there was actually Giuliani's son. Yeah, which might have been better. Did you not see the original? You would have loved it. It's going to remind you of Stas when he's older, and you're like having an you're having a moment. You're having you're speaking in church, and Stas will be behind you, just goofing around. Come on, Stas. Anyway, uh, we got a lot to cover, folks. Straight ahead, we're going to be talking about why justice is more important than rule of law and really the importance of conflict in our political system. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you be the good in the world. Americans are feeling more and more stressed uh, today. A study last year confirmed that people are most worried about the future of the nation and current social divisiveness. Many, uh, most people say that this is because the rule of law is being ignored in our country today. But what is the rule of law and how does it relate to justice? Here to speak with us today is Dr. Klaus Melodic, a professor of comparative literature at Dartmouth College and uh, the author of an article on theconversation.com, Why Justice is More Important Than the Rule of Law. Uh, Klaus, thank you so much for being with us today. Thanks for having me, Matt. This is, um, I think, I think a really important topic, and especially uh, at a perfect time, it seems like, in our history. Uh, talk to us, Klaus. What, how, how do you differentiate between uh, this idea of, like, the rule of law and everybody being frustrated that the rule of law is not being, um, you know, fulfilled or, or lived up to versus justice? Yeah, that's a, that's a crucial question. I think that the rule of law, when it was conceived in the 18th century as the rule of law versus the rule of men, um, is in a way not enough, I argue, for addressing our anxieties. The political anxiety that I, that I mentioned at the beginning of the article, that uh, people think we are too divided, that uh, the future of the nation is at risk, that we have reached the lowest point in history, um, because the rule of law, to a certain degree, is, um, when you think about it, it's bendable, it's incomplete, it's unjust. Often there are laws that are, that are unjust. I mean, I come from Germany, and in Germany, as you know, between 1933 and 1945, we had the rule of injustice. Mm. And uh, so you, and Martin Luther King addressed that very powerfully. He said, look, if I lived in, in Germany in the 40s uh, and I would just uh, abide by the laws, I would, do, I would commit injustices. And um, I think we have to regain hold of the, the concept of justice. Um, I um, was, was very struck by a quote from a pre-Socratic philosopher, Heraclitus, who said, conflict is justice. Hmm. 
And that is an amazing statement when you think about it. But oh, yeah. notice that Madison, Jefferson, think exactly through that problem. Namely, how do you uh, reconcile conflicts? How do you manage conflicts? How do you deal with conflicts in a fashion that is creative, value-creating, in fact? And, and improvement and improving, right? You, you want your process of dealing with the conflict to actually be enhancing the, the solutions and, and creating more justice. That's right. I mean, uh, I, I think, for example, um, that when Heraclitus said that, it sounds, sounds almost crazy, right? Mm-hmm. Conflict itself is a form of justice. But when you really think through it, when you, when you engage in conflict, um, you um, show respect for your opponent, you uh, acknowledge that you can't just jump immediately to a consensus. Uh, you cannot immediately uh, uh, say, oh, I have already reached some form of future consensus. No, you have to uh, put yourself into the place of tension. You, um, I mean, you had last week someone on who talked about um, uh, conflict in work, workplace. Yeah. Um, and that, that, I felt like, was exactly what I was trying to convey. That Jefferson, for example, had that melancholic conclusion, said, oh, my God, I even now in my friendship with Hamilton and with Madison have, uh, have the completely different opinions. How do I reconcile that? You know, I'm more for states' rights. Uh, Hamilton wants something like the English Constitution, and that uh, that even on the personal level made them made them anxious about their their discord. But that discord is actually value creating. It is a chance to for us to uh, to engage in struggles for um, for better compromises. Does it does it matter, um, Professor, if how we handle the conflict? Because it seems like sometimes these conflicts are um, they're not they're not we're not dialoguing. We're not creating solutions. It seems like together. It seems like for some one party gets the power and then they enforce their power um, versus and then the next party gets their power and they re they'll enforce their power. Does it matter if it's dialogic versus, you know, just like forced conflict? Right. I mean, uh, again, sorry to, to come back to, to Jefferson, but he said we often confuse en- uh, uh, energy with violence, mm. right? We, we uh, think discord is something violent, but in fact, it is a, an engine. Think of the, um, I mean, I'm a chess player, right? When you really uh, go for the draw, you don't create a beautiful match, right? Uh, or um, I'm, I'm also, you know, I'm coming from a multi-party system in Germany. And, you know, Voltaire, the French philosopher, said beautifully, right? If there are only two religions, the people would cut each other's throats. Hmm. But if there are many, if there is a multitude and many factions, many passions and interests, then we all live happily and in peace. And I think part of the problem is that we have that we are headbutting uh, between two parties who are locked in a uh, in a kind of culture war, and they're just not enough. There's divisiveness because there's not then there are not as uh, uh, as many divisions as we need as we need. Do you see this in Germany? 
Um, do you see this in other parts of the world where they're all as stressed as we are? I mean, there are a lot of movements uh, ab- about with nationalism or, or and, you know, kind of butting up against globalism. Um, do, but do you see the same kind of anxiety and tension in other countries? This is a great question. Um, I've been thinking about this this morning. Um, absolutely. I do think that in Germany as well, or in France, or in, I have Spanish friends and English friends. Brexit is a big yeah. issue. I do think that. What is so interesting at the moment, there is in Germany a sense of sort of political um, discontent and cynicism and, um, and anger, but at the same time a sort of private content. So people drive their carbon uh, bikes, they have beautiful cars, they sit in the beer gardens and have a great uh, time with friends. But when it comes to politics, they switch, and there is immediately an enormous amount of, of anger that has to be vented. So it's not completely different. However, I do think it's somewhat mitigated by the fact that there are multiple parties, multiple factions, and, and different types of conflicts. That it's not just, right, uh, like in the United States in the last years, it has been, you have to be pro-choice. Mm. Uh, you know, I mean, just... Think of people who, for example, are pro-choice, pro-labor, pro-church. That doesn't actually exist almost anymore. And uh, that is what I mean with multiplying passions, interests, and factions. So by having more factions, you're arguing um, by having more differences, um, even within our parties, within our our systems, it it would actually – it would – it would – probably help us diminish the anxiety or or yeah. and it would help us uh, probably create more justice right i mean think about it i mean from your uh, um interested in the divorce uh, um uh, law and mitigation and i i uh, uh, think about that as well right when a third a mediator enters, right. it's a completely different scenario all of a sudden there is a different ear. You're no longer simply in this, in this locked in this. Yeah, I mean, let's call it echo chamber. Mm-hmm. In, in a in a headbutting uh, confrontation that just wants to uh, uh, engage in a war of roses. And I think that uh, uh, makes all the difference. The entrance of a third or even a fourth mm-hmm. um, that would get us out of this particular um, mode of. Of, of two. And it, yeah, this binary choice we have of Republican or Democrat. And then even in our political world, you see a lot of uh, independents, they're calling them, but the independents, you know, seem to just kind of go with one party or the other. But behind all of this is also this this interesting sense as humans that we've been violated, mm-hmm. that that our justice is violated. And it seems like that's what creates so much of this energy. Absolutely. You know, people, when they responded to my article, uh, were pretty uh, cynical, right? Some uh, some said, oh, the only law that people understand is the the, uh, rule of the gun. Or uh, they say something like, uh, the more money you have, the more justice you get. Um, And the rest of us, good luck. Justice is in the United States is dead. And I think this, this cynicism comes also from, um, to a certain degree, no longer uh, seeing the precision of justice. You feel it only, 
you know, justice is a vague term. It has to do with love. It has to do with uh, with God. Sometimes it has to go to do with uh, uh, totally different fields. You know, to, uh, fidelity to the dead. But um, in a way, we have we have no longer we are no longer ca- capable of. Uh, feeling the injustice. For example, children feel injustice very poignantly. I feel injustice in the past in my childhood very uh, strongly. I mean, my grandfather, for example, was arrested by by the Gestapo for uh, saying something bad about Hitler. So he was put in a concentration camp, came back as a broken man. And that uh, was always haunted my family, I have to say. And I think many people have those strong senses of injustice. For example, 2008 was such a moment where a lot of people, uh, the financial crisis, where a lot of people felt, wow, uh, we really um, let uh, the wrong people off the hook, right? Yeah. Um, so that, that injustice is strongly felt, and I feel we haven't addressed it, and we haven't addressed it through modes of conflict. And it's interesting. Yeah, that's an interesting point because um, it's almost like you can't heal because you don't ever have a voice, but you always remember. Yeah. So then when there is a pain or when you when there is a moment where you can do it, you always feel that pain of injustice. Absolutely. I mean, it manifests itself sometimes in humiliations and in injuries, in shame. You know, or when you didn't do something, I mean, the risk of not doing something is so big. Sometimes, I mean, I didn't help a uh, uh, a friend when I was 10 years old who got beaten up just because he was Spanish. And I felt, still feel mm. kind of ashamed about it, right? Yeah. Uh, and those things, they linger. And uh, it's astonishing how precise justice, in fact, is. It's not that broad as uh, many people think. And it's it's so personal, too, it sounds yeah. like. It really is personal. That is a that is, you know, I mean, bring it bring, maybe bring it a little bit to the impersonal level. But I think, right, justice is in a way the conflict with doing justice to each and everyone as a creature singularly. But at the same time, it is it has something to do with equality, treating everyone the same. Mm. Right? Parents are advised to treat their children the same, to 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 have to have a sort of equality. Whereas grandparents often have said they can have their favorites, right? Um, and in a way, justice is this conflict between singular, addressing a person as a who, you, like in love, and on the other hand, um, uh, to what, you know, to the cause of equality, racial justice, social justice, gender equality, and the like. Uh, again, we're speaking with Dr. Klaus Melodic, who is a professor of comparative literature at Dartmouth College. He's walking us through uh, why justice is more important than the rule of law. Many times we have laws that don't necessarily provide equal justice, and we've seen that over many, many years of history. Um, Klaus, one thing I, I also um, notice is that there's a weird – there's almost like two conversations going on where we're – People are citing the the lack of law or the lack of people following the law, um, but really, what what everyone can be fighting simultaneously is their own injustice. Yeah, but yeah. The, like, I mean, I just see. I mean, we see all of these movements, but we see 
there's no everybody has had some injustice, it seems like. And um, and so then when we get to a fight present day about uh, the DACA laws um, for in for immigration, everybody pulls out their their past injustices and just starts beating each other up with them. That's right. This is why I think also coming back to this conflict is justice term. You know, when you when you it's not about setting aside your differences or, you know, coming together for the greater good to find a solution. That I think is is wrong headed. In a way it's a path to injustice because you assume already consensus. So what you just said, the past injustice. You know, I don't know if you can put it aside, but think of the term forgiveness. Forgiveness is not to forget past injustices, like in the truth and reconciliation uh, um, uh, procedures during the South, you know, in yeah. South Africa. Uh, it's not about so much forgetting injustices, but finding modes to to discuss them, to address them, to in fact. Um, fully live them and act them again, and, and thus to, to um, I mean, I, let, let me just say one thing. I, you know, Cornel West said beautifully, um, love is, or justice is what love looks like in public. When you think of the moment of falling in love, and, you know, that's what, it, what justice is all about. Mm-hmm. It is also being um, bereft of solutions, being, having not a clear answer. Being, you know, this is the moment Madison, Madison and Jefferson had in this moment of, of revolution, right? The moment where everything is at stake, where everything has to be questioned. You know, in our very regulated society where everything is, is uh, uh, determined, what you eat, how you're supposed to raise your kids, how you're supposed to, to talk, then suddenly this moment of erasure of all uh, different preconceptions um, is is a very liberating moment, and in a way, I ask, I would ask, to um, politicians to put themselves into a position of falling in love, right, mm. in an emphatic sense, meaning erasure of all the preconceived uh, notions, not to forget, but be capable of suspending of a kind of forgiving. Yeah, that's uh, that's powerful and. Also, I in my head, I I wonder uh, because there are certain things we're not even allowed to say. There's there's th- there's things you're not even allowed to question um, because of past injustices. Uh, that, that's why it was so interesting and beautiful for you to bring up uh, Germany because right. you lived there and your grandpa did question Hitler and he paid for it. And then that's got to put everybody in your family in this weird position of like just be quiet. Don't talk. Yeah. Um, but yeah. so so how do we how do we teach that process of, you know, suspending your need to react and actually remaining open to the conversation? Yeah, this is exactly um, the, the, the point, right? How to to be open, sort of a constitutive openness to surprise, to mm-hmm. effects of conflicts that are different from what you originally were set out to do, right? When you sit around a table, so to say, or you uh, um, uh, are engaged in a, in a contentious moment. Um, 
And I think we have to learn how to sustain this tension and put yourself into the patience and the tenacity to remain in this place of discord and tension and not immediately look for confirmation, not, not immediately look for consensus. Um, and that entails not just that you, uh, that, 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 as we said, that is this openness to a surprise outcomes. Right. For example, Madison said it's a stroke of luck. Best compromise are sometimes like a stroke of luck. Uh, the compromise is called the Constitution. That's yeah. in the second line to establish justice. Right. There are that compromises emerge from sparks of protracted struggles and sudden encounters. So we are. Yeah, I, I, I can't say it uh, to open to this radical sort of contingency of what could happen in the next moment rather than having all those preordained um, demands in, in your head. Yeah, that's so powerful. And really is uh, – there's so much There's so much that can be in those sparks. There's so many surprises, so many things that we can't imagine uh, how beautiful the answers could be if we could allow those sparks to take place. I guess, too, some of our human nature is we don't want surprise. We we and so and especially when we have institutions and organizations and people and parties that are trying to always force their hand, it's hard to go into a meeting where anyone would actually remain open to surprise. Yeah, yeah. no, exactly. I mean, I think I have the worst meetings when I'm already kind of obsessed about uh, what is supposed to happen, or when I already imagine certain positions being uh, almost you know, hang over me as yeah. though I have, you know, I mean, I have lovely colleagues, uh, so that isn't really a big issue, but it is, uh, you know, you, you, if you are really, to a certain degree, um, also ready for humor that allows in that moment to break this ice, yeah. um, that is extremely powerful um, in, in moments when, when you're, to a certain degree, too tense. Um, there is such a thing as too tense as well. Yeah. Uh, right? Uh, one should not. Uh, this is when tension can bleed into violence. Mm, it's beautiful. I mean, really, it's, it's this dialogue that needs to take place in our community, in our culture. And I, I so appreciate you doing what you can to push on the paradigm of all of us. Dr. Klaus Melodic is his name, a professor of comparative literature at Dartmouth College. Uh, just a gem. Uh, honestly, we're so lucky to have thinkers like Klaus that are, that, that are out there pushing us and, and driving us to be better and more open to uh, what can be. Up next, we'll do a little Coach's Corner, see how we can bring these dialogues, these conversations home. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you be the good in the world. Boy, you too stupid to do what your coach tells you. Because life doesn't come with a handbook, you need a coach. Here's Dr. Matt and his coaching corner. Play ball. Play ball. Well, um, you know, when you think about conflict in your life, how do you handle it? Are you one that uh, that can actually sit back, as our last guest was talking to us about, and uh, and allow the difference of opinion in? Can you suspend your need to react? Right? Can you attend to what they're saying and remain influenceable, remain open to what another person is saying? Do you listen? Do you actually listen to what they are saying? And uh, on top of all of it, do you also voice 
I mean, a lot of people could sit and listen and be, you know, quiet and passive. And but do you also voice your opinion as well? Do you have a, do you have the ability to take what they've said and bridge your opinion into theirs? I call it build onto their opinion because what I believe is when we listen to people really attentively, eighty percent of what they are saying you will probably agree with. So as as a mediator, I would sit down with couples fighting about the biggest issues of their marriage, and they're they're in a pretty intense argument. And as we start to kind of, you know, slice down the argument into its its more finite points, what you will find out, find out when you get to the more finite points, we have about 80% agreement. There's a lot of stuff we agree on in the argument, but we spend about 100% of our time where we disagree. So do you have the ability to suspend and to make sure that you're not reacting to uh, your emotion inside, this fight or flight kicking in you, in your heart and in your mind that's making your heart race and uh, you want to stop them from saying what they're saying because if I can just stop you from saying it, I guess that would make it not happen or that would make you not think that way. But wouldn't it make more sense to allow some of these ideas out into the dialogue, especially if it's somebody I love and care about and want to influence wouldn't it make more sense to actually understand where they're coming from, right? So that I can understand why they're thinking this way, why they're doing what they're doing, why they're, you know, making or taking this position about something that I hold near and dear to my heart. There is, there's power, folks, in this ability to do it. And I, the funny thing is we expect our, our leaders to be able to do it politically, and yet I believe most of us can't do it privately, Most of us struggle to do that personally. Over and over, in fact, tonight as well, I will sit in a room tonight with probably 10 to 12 people, six couples who really have a hard time talking with each other. And and we've trained them, we've taught them the skills, and tonight they come and they just practice it. And as they practice it, it is amazing how how hard it is to actually, you know, hold back those horses that want to just run with this issue and stop their partner from saying what they feel or what they think and or in misinterpreting it and taking it to the worst possible level I could take it. Those are unique skills, right? Notice I've talked about suspending, attending, listening, voicing, all very important points, building onto what people are saying all important communication skills. Do you possess them? Because if you don't, can I just challenge you to go start learning how to do it? In fact, next hour, we will also be talking about how to manage your emotions so you're not as, uh, you don't get taken over by that wave of emotion when somebody says something you didn't want to hear. This is about relating, folks. This is about life. And by the way, if you remember, it's also about your stress A lot of your stress comes from the mere fact that you know deep, deep, deep in your heart, we don't know how to do this thing. We don't know how to have conflict. And until we do, I think we will always have that stress. A little coach's corner, you know, it's just my take. We will continue the journey straight ahead. This is the Matt Townsend Show. You're listening to us right here on BYU Radio.
Welcome back. You know, uh, one place um, where we may not be always getting along like we think we should is is even in the marketing of certain products. And our own Terry South has been uh, doing some research on a company that may be getting itself in a little bit of trouble. The, the bosses at Doritos yeah. have revealed that they're about to launch a new lady-friendly version of the snack, which are quieter and easier to eat and a lot less messy. Like, well, that's all the fun. Yeah. Well, but so they're assuming that women are just more dainty and they'd rather have a quiet Dorito and yeah, less they, messy. They claim researchers found women do not like to crunch loudly or lick their fingers when eating in front of others. The <laughs> global is... a global executive for the company says all the women would love to crunch chips loudly, lick their fingers, and pour crumbs from the bag into their mouth afterwards. They prefer not to do this in public. Well, I don't like doing any of that. Do you know how many times I get shushed eating Doritos? She says a lot of young guys will eat the chips and do all these things, lick their fingers with glee, as they say, and dump Mm -hmm. the... I don't know if I've ever done that. Women would... uh, They'd love to do the same, but they don't. They don't like to crunch too loudly in public, and they don't lick their fingers. Hmm. My wife has disagreed with all of this, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> it's not a male-female as much as there are snacks for women that can be designed and packaged differently. And yes, we're looking into it and we're getting ready to launch a bunch soon, they said. The wow. low-crunch triangular snacks will even come in special packs specifically designed to fit in women's handbags. Hmm. Wow. It's Cam- a little cute bag. Women's campaigners have slammed the unusual move as a tired gender stereotypes. Well, companies that perpetrate these tired gender stereotypes will continue to lose out on the yeah. single biggest consumer group, women, because they'll look at it and be like, what are you doing? Well, until they actually provide, it doesn't, I guess it doesn't, if they actually provided a cleaner way and a quieter way to eat a Dorito that you could eat in the middle of a movie without upsetting everyone around you, right? then everybody that wants it will buy it and then it won't, it's, it, the deal is just framing it as a female issue. But that's I part of the like fun. Licking my fingers in public. It's mm-hmm. so much fun to be sitting in a movie and to try to see how quiet you can be as you open a plastic bag or like a sandwich wrapper. <laughs> or how about church? My kids will always bring food like that to church, and I'm like, are you serious? <laughs> now, this is funny. A conservative MP from Britain was asked about this for some reason, and the uh, Telegraph had the, the quote that says, I never lick my fingers in public or in private as I think it's a ghastly habit. It's a ghastly habit. I think the idea of chips for women is a bit daft, although I think women are generally a bit fussier than men about these things. I am a cruncher, but I'm fussy about where I crunch. Bully for them, Doritos. They're, they're, they've introduced <laughs> polite chips. Oh, wow. Don't you think the world would I be a better that. place, though, if we could all just act the way we do in our home in front of other people? No. Really? Not a better place. Hmm. So now I, don't like the no. me- I don't like the mess, so I just <laughs> eat the whole chip. Yeah. You just, just don't, then, don't play with your yeah. food. Just eat it. And then I just let it sit on my tongue until it's wet enough that it makes no noise. It's about a minute of chip. Anyway, helping you uh, get through your chips, this is the Matt Townsend Show. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good morning, friends. Welcome to the program. Dr. Matt here, your coach, your guide on the side. My, oh, my, have we got a lot to cover today, uh, including Dr. Frank Ninavaji will be joining us on, by the way, I'm loving his book. It's Which one? 
He uh, wrote a book called Making Sense of Emotion. The one mm. Matt's blurbs on the back of. It is ah. a major, it's the Bible of emotional intelligence. Oh, wow. You've got a blurb? Yeah, I've got a blurb. Let me see. Uh, and it's, <sighs> the thing about. It says, what a book. The no. thing about Dr. Ninavaji is that he's he's a brainiac. He is yes. the smartest guy ever. He's a Yale psychiatrist and um, and yet is now trying to help us understand our own emotions. So when I'm starting to get frustrated and angry about what you are saying in a conversation, how do I how do I take that emotion and handle it effectively? Mm-hmm. That's what we're going to be getting into today. Why did you rate it five chilies? I don't know. Five yeah. chili peppers. Well, because it's hot. <laughs> Okay. Why else would I rate it five chili peppers? Hmm. It's hot. Yeah, he'll, he'll be so glad to hear that. Five it's five chili peppers. So uh, that's go, what's going on um, later in the show. But Stock market open, drop 500 points. That's the problem. A lot of people mm. then start reacting, and once you start reacting to news like that, it gets ugly. Yeah. So should I be selling my stock? Should no. I be no. dumping it? Just ignore this whole thing. At an alarming rate? No. That's fine. Okay. Just let it sit. <laughs> you just start dumping your stock? I would hold on to it. The, the, you always play the long game. Well, first let me go find out if I own any stock. You probably don't then. Yeah. Ask your wife. <laughs> she would know. Do you have a pension? Uh, in For, five uh, years Doritos. I will have here. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so that's So now everybody's like – Dissing Trump because hey oh look at you look at your recovery yeah yeah but then he owned it too yeah what yeah what did he say well no he 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 didn't own he owned the the success yeah he's like look at the economy look what we've done since we came in this is so much better than it was you know yeah. less than a year ago he said that all the time and then once it falls you also have to own the fact that it fell yeah. because you just own you know and that's hard to do when. I mean, because as a president, you want to say, look at our success. And that there's a sign that everyone can, like, just look at. The stock market's skyrocketing. Right. But then it falls, and they're like, well, we're – like the spokesperson yesterday for the White House said that we're looking at more of the long-term successes, <laughs> not what happened, you know, today. Yeah, right. No, that's But like that's I was telling key. you, he's in Ohio giving a speech. He's walking around a plant. He's looking at, you know, manufacturing. And he's trying to promote the economy and look at the greatness as the news channels are cutting away from the speech to show the stock market just dropping out of sight. <laughs> it's like, um, um messaging. Um, plus, you but know But I don't what? know how you get, get up to him and say, oh, by the way, you need to change your entire, you know, you can't change the whole speech. That was the right. whole point. Right. That's the problem. Just, it was just bad timing, but it was kind of fun to watch that. He the the problem is too. You all the news media outlets love to just beat him up. Sure, or and love he, him up, whichever channel. He, you're well, on. yeah, depends on the channel you're listening to. So it's always going to be an echo chamber, right? Same thing happened with Obama. Same mm. thing happened with Bush. Depending on who you're watching and what was going on. And- Depends on which echo you want to hear. Well, let's get to Terry's echo and find out uh, what he's going My to be echo, covering. Right. Uh, what other headlines should we be paying attention to? Interesting fact I read today. Yesterday marked the 10,316th day since the Berlin Wall officially fell. Really? The same number of days that stood that it stood between 1961 and 1989. Hmm. So it's been down as long as it was up. Really? How many days? 10,316. 10,316. That's what I was thinking. That's amazing. That's cool. I remember those days. 
the Which day of makes the fall. me feel old because I watched that fall on the news. Yep. It's like, huh, look at that. President Donald Trump on Monday suggests Democrats were un-American and treasonous for not reacting positively to his State of the Union address. During a Monday speech in Ohio, the president blasted the opposing party's lawmakers for not applauding him. Even when he referenced positive news, he said they were like death and un-American. Somebody said treasonous. I mean, yeah, I guess why not? We can call it treasonous. Why not? You're wrong. (laughs) Why not? So he didn't actually say it. He said some. No, have that's said. his trick. He always. That's how he <laughs> infers something was said by someone. He else. He says somebody else. Then tomorrow, someone. Then today, someone writes that he said that, and then the next day he goes, "It was written in this." You know, he well, cites whatever your it words. came from. Those are your words. Yeah. So, it's, but it's also could easily have been Lenny, the the sweeper boy right. that swept the back patio of the the back portico of the White House. Right. Because they were like Le- Lenny said that. It was Lenny. But, you know, you just don't reference Lenny. Can we can we talk to Lenny? I don't think we no, should be Len- listening to Lenny's Lenny. Lenny's business. Lenny, Lenny's a busy guy. He can't do it. The House Intelligence Committee voted unanimously on Monday to send the White House me- a memo written by Democrats as a rebuttal to the document compiled for Chairman Devin Nunez, who hasn't actually seen any of the underlying intelligence that he built, that his, his staff built the memo on, which is kind of an interesting fact that I was listening today. He hasn't seen it, but he wrote the memo, which it alleges M, uh, FBI mishandled the warrant application to monitor one of Trump's campaign advisors. That memo was released Friday after it was declassified. The House Intelligence Committee ranking member Adam Schiff told reporters Monday afternoon Nunez was asked if he coordinated with the White House while crafting the memo, and Nunez refused to answer. <laughs> Schiff said that we've often seen in criminal cases, when the facts are increasingly incriminating of the defendant, there's an effort to put the government on trial. That brings us to where we are today. Really? That's what Schiff said. That's he went on to accuse Republicans of putting the FBI and Department of Justice on trial, which is which uh, very, he says, very ill serves the public, and we hope they will stop. Easy for him to say. And I was like, that is, hmm. that's a weird... It's a weird phrasing. Very it ill, very ser- ill yeah. serves Trump the public. Knows, Trump now has five days to decide if he'll block the release of the memo or redact it or somehow... I, Maybe he'll, just he'll release let it, it go, or, and then he'll just block the. Uh, he'll redact the entire thing, and then they'll release it, and then they'll say, "I, re- I release it." Yeah, Some people just, said, "I, we redacted too much," but I don't know who they are. He'll claim his uh, bipartisan theme from his State of the Union. Yes, even though he called Democrats treasonous yesterday. For- well. They got to clap more and stand. Congress has until midnight Thursday to pass the fiscal 2018 spending bill, or more likely, the fifth straight stopgap spending measure. And the House Republicans unveiled their opening gambit on Monday night. You ready for it? Yeah. House Speaker Paul Ryan proposed to a uh, a caucus a bill that would fund the government at current levels until March 2013, with the exception of the Defense Department, which would get a $30 billion boost and be funded for the rest of the fiscal year. So, okay, through March for most of the the government, but for the rest of the year for the military. Right. Okay, that makes the sense. proposal, which also funds community health centers, is expected to pass the GOP with GOP votes in the House but die in the Senate. Lawmakers made progress Monday on a full year spending package, including a boost to domestic spending. Democrats are demanding to match the boost to military spending pushed by Republicans. So everyone wants stuff and everybody on the other side doesn't want to give it to them. And we have till Thursday to figure this out and... Yay! Yay! Some more excitement. <laughs> it's going to be great. 
Um, finally, a SpaceX Starman is aboard the company's new rocket that is set to make its launch debut from Florida, possibly today. SpaceX chief Elon Musk revealed pictures of the surprise dummy passenger Monday. Test flights carry uh, usually carry steel or concrete for cargo for our mundane experiments. Just something kind of to give the rocket weight so as they test it, they yeah. can make sure everything works correctly. Nothing valuable in case the rocket blows up. Have you right. seen what's in the rocket? No, what's in the rocket? Aboard, the, they're calling this rocket, it's called the Heavy Falcon, or the Falcon Heavy, which is, again, kind of awkwardly termed, but it's called the Falcon Heavy. Uh, Tuesday's demo, Musk, he put his uh, red Tesla Roadster in the rocket. Really? So the weight in the rocket is his Tesla Roadster, which I think there's just a handful of because it's a brand new car they're making. And it's going to be shot up into space. It's be shot into space. Is it recoverable? No, a, I don't believe that's the plan. A mannequin is in the driver's seat with his right hand on the wheel, left arm resting on the door because he's comfortable. Hmm. It's a, it's a convertible. That's how you drive. I would have right? given him my car and taken the Roadster. <laughs> right. Ten and two, buddy. Ten and two. Starman, as Musk calls the passenger, is wearing a white and black trim spacesuit and helmet. The same outfit real astronauts will wear when riding SpaceX rockets from Florida a year or so from now bound for the International Space Station. Musk, who also runs Tesla, the electric car company, is sending this roadster into a long solar orbit stretching out to Mars. Hmm. The entrepreneur says David Bowie's classic hit Space Oddity will be looping on the radio in the roadster as it launches. Really? Last week, the Federal Aviation Administration officially licensed the flight from Kennedy Space Center. The Falcon Heavy at liftoff will be the world's most powerful rocket currently in operation. It's three of, we've seen him launch his rockets, go up, supply the space station, and then like land the rocket. This is three of those rockets strapped together. That's pretty cool. But they're sending this car up. It's going to go on a loop around, what does it say? They're going to land it. They're going to bring it back. And then he's going to drive his Roadster. Possibly. And then that Roadster is going to pay so for it says Tesla. They're sending the Roadster into a long solar orbit stretching out to Mars. So it'll go around the sun and then loop around Mars. And the way the article I read is they're just going to let it go. It'll just keep doing that loop. That's cool. So the car just millions of years. Think of the frequent flyer miles on Crazy. that one. <laughs> At some point, someone decides to go up and catch it just so they can look at the car. And they open it. No, seriously. Music is still playing. In that about 100 years, we will be able to go up and catch that, and then that car will be worth a ton of money. And maybe that's how Elon Musk's kids fund their electric car company instead of using government subsidies. Yeah, especially considering Tesla was out of business 100 years well, earlier. yeah, that too. Even though I love Tesla, but mm. they're struggling. They got to make this work. That's the problem is maybe he's doing too 3. many things. Maybe. Maybe he's – He's making flamethrowers. He's yeah. trying to dig holes for his Hyperloop. Yeah, yeah, see. He's just – he's so many – he's focused in so many Focus. different ways. Apparently, the flamethrower came because there was a Twitter joke about making a flamethrower. So he went, yeah, let's make a flamethrower. Can't you see Elon's mom calling calling him and saying, Elon, focus. You've got to focus. You are I so know. distractible. It's fine, mom. I'll and take care of it. that was my car that you put up into space. Hey, It, uh, it looks really cool sitting in there. They have it all like propped up. Yeah. Like it's uh, on display in, inside the, the rocket. Go check so. it out because – that's what I need is to covet more cars. Yeah. <laughs> what a mess. Hey, bad news. If you are a smoker and a drinker, listen to this. Be careful. 
drinking hot tea. Mm. Apparently, drinking tea while it's too hot could increase your risk of esophageal cancer. A new study. It could burn your tongue too. Yeah. So this is back to the hot drinks. We've talked about uh, the downside to hot coffee as well, but uh, just because it has that some there's the chemical chemical in it. But now, if you're a drinker or um, a smoker, that apparently gives you even a higher risk. Esophageal cancer is the eighth most common cancer in the world. Mm. It's often fatal, killing approximately 400,000 people every year, according to the International Agency for Research on Cancer. Um, it usually is caused by repeated injury to the esophageal uh, – to the esophagus due to smoke, alcohol, acid reflux, and maybe hot liquids. Mm. Which is – so when you're in a country like England where you're drinking a lot of tea, you've got to be careful or any tea-drinking country like China. Just toss a couple ice cubes in there first. Toss them. Let it cool a bit. That's how you get the chicken soup to cool off. Toss some ice cubes in there. Yeah. Is that how you do it? That's what my kid gets. <laughs> toss an ice cube in. I'm like, okay, fine. That'll work, son. Well, now that's too cold. Yeah, then he gets mad. Then you got to nuke it. And then at that point, I'm bored. So I'm like, eat it or leave. Yeah, it's just it's soup though, or just, uh, just drink it. My my three year old will say it's not too hot. She'll put piping hot food in her mouth and start chewing on it just to show me how brave she is. Look, I'm so brave. It's like, yeah, but you're not going to be able to taste that food. Yeah, I think you're brave. Just let it cool brave. down. Maybe let her do other things to show her bravery. You know, take her shooting. Oh, she's always getting hurt and stitches, and she, I think she's brave. She's tough. She sounds really tough. She is. Um, I mean, everybody's burnt their tongue, right? Oh, yeah. Daily. If you've had a pizza lately. Mm. Or soup. Yeah. Pizza and soup. Oh, boy. That just reminded me I forgot lunch. Mm. Blasted! Anyway, let's get to the other headlines. Uh, Jeffrey, do you have any news for us that we should be paying attention to? I sure do. Uh, You tell me if you think this is right. Okay. So there's an escaped inmate in Texas who's back behind bars after authorities caught him running back to the prison with a duffel bag full of alcohol, home-cooked food, and tobacco. So he he was doing the responsible thing. He went out to get some goodies that weren't available in prison, turned right back around, and and tried to go back to prison. Well, now what's wrong with that? What was he doing that for, though? So, uh, let's see. This is in Beaumont, Texas. He was crossing onto a rancher's land that backs up to the federal complex. The inmates would then pick up contraband that was dropped off for them and bring it back to the prison. So authorities caught some surveillance uh, surveillance footage of this. They spotted a truck pulling onto the private property and dropping off a large bag. Shortly after, Joshua Hansen, an inmate serving time for narcotics charges, in case you were curious. yeah was seen running from prison grounds, grabbing the bag and making his way back when police arrested him. Oh, boy. So he was being arrested on his way back to prison. Yeah. Inside the duffel bag, they found alcohol, yep. prepackaged Hooch. snacks, yeah. and a large amount of home-cooked food, including oh, really? barbecue sausage uh, and fried chicken. See, but... Uh, to me, that sounds like a cry for help, like, please, you've got to change the menu in here. <laughs> Seriously... I can't have any more tuna on a shingle. 
Do you have a, a problem with that? If they're doing the responsible thing, returning to prison of their own Well, no. He was, already, he was in prison, wasn't he? Yeah, but he escaped prison to get the food and right. the contraband to come back. Yeah, so... What's wrong with that? Well, it's illegal. Yeah, but why? Because he's being... He's showing, he's showing initiative... No, yeah. He's being uh, responsible well, by coming on. back. Lots of crimes take initiative. <laughs> so that's not a hallmark of, you know. I just I guess recovery. I wouldn't consider it a crime cuz did he really escape if yeah. he came back? Well, he wasn't back apparently when he was caught. Hmm. You know what I mean? Anyway, it's not a holiday inn. They've got a They've got to stay in. Are you saying that the Holiday Inn – okay, I, I see what you're saying. They have to stay in. This isn't like, hey, I'm just checking out for a minute. I'll be right back. They're in prison. They've got to stay there. Well, then who's going to bring them this – Nobody. Nobody. They're not supposed to have it. That's contraband. Wow. wow. Contraband. Well, anyway, yeah. you notice there one of the last things mentioned in the story and something in the bag was fried chicken. Mm. We've got another story – about a domestic disturbance yes. involving fried chicken. What? Somebody was assaulted with fried chicken. Ugh. And uh, Ron Brokaw actually did a brief interview with somebody that uh, wouldn't normally comment on these domestic disturbance type stories. And we've got him here now. And uh, it's not a full interview. I think there were some hurt feelings, so he may have ended abruptly. This is Ron Brokaw. Tom Brokaw's like second or third cousin. Right. So, and he he explains the whole story. It's it's crazy. Okay. During an argument with his girlfriend, a Florida man allegedly threw a piece of fried chicken at the woman, striking her in the face with the poultry, leading to his arrest for domestic battery. Believe it or not, it's not the myriad women's groups that are up in arms over this story, but rather the animal rights activists. And we've got one of those activists here with us today. Miss Jan Eisel, thank you for joining us. I wish I could say I was happy to be here with you. But you see, Ron, chickens are being abused obscenely and relentlessly. Uh, Miss Eisel, you do know that the fried chicken in question was not alive, right? It was uh, fried. Oh, you see, Ron, it's, it's that mentality that really busts my chops. And it speaks volumes about where we're at as a society today. You know, just because an animal has been slaughtered, drained of all its blood, prepared in compliance with USDA standards, and then sold for consumption, doesn't mean we shouldn't treat that animal with respect and dignity. What about the woman who was assaulted? Uh, many would say, and rightly so, that she is the real victim. Oh, don't do that, Rhonda. Don't make me out to be the villain. I'm sure what this young woman endured was just horrible. But she's got plenty of people rushing to her defense. But what about the chickens, Ron? Let's not forget that chickens are people, too. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. 
You know, uh, honored to have our our next guest on. He's a great contributor to the show. We we have him on regularly because we like to pick his brain. Um, it's Dr. Frank Ninavaji, who is a, a medical doctor and associate attending physician at Yale New Haven Hospital and an assistant clinical professor of child psychiatry at the Yale University School of Medicine's Child Study Center. He also is the author of a, his most recent book, Making Sense of Emotion, Innovating Emotional Intelligence. And today we will be picking his brain about uh, this concept of learned mindfulness Achieving Authentic Integrity. Dr. Frank Ninavaji, thank you for being with us today. You're welcome. Glad to be with you again. Love having you on the show and uh, learning from you. This this idea of we, – we hear about mindfulness a lot. Um, it's – it's it, you hear a lot of people that are into yoga, meditation, um, uh, Buddhism, mindfulness kind of reigns supreme. But but you, I think, take it to a completely different level. Um, talk talk us through. How would you define learned mindfulness? Well, I I coined the term learned mindfulness to uh, distinguish it and differentiate it from everything else that you've just mentioned. <clears throat> because it, um, the, the whole field of uh, what uh, is thought about and talked about and out there as mindfulness has become what they call a cottage industry. Yeah. Um, there's tons, tons of material and tons of writing and tons of courses and uh, practices uh, on uh, mindfulness and and definitions. Uh, So to sort of uh, bring it down uh, without going into great detail, because actually uh, this emerges, learned mindfulness emerged out of the book I just published a couple of months ago, Making Sense of Emotion, Innovating Emotional Intelligence. And that book is exactly what it says. For me, it was the culmination of 40, 45 years of clinical work in psychology, psychiatry, working with children, working with human beings, and seeing that really what counts a lot is human lives, and human lives are the fire of emotion, living, breathing individually and with others. So... I thought, let me write a book on it, put it all together for me, for my own uh, benefit, as well as maybe to share with others. I did, and as great nature, the great universe works, uh, those ideas were so pregnant that they gave rise to a child, and the child was, so now... What comes next? What are you going to do with all this um, innovative emotional intelligence? Because in and of itself, it's, it's really crucial, but there is always a next step. There is always another, another insight, another depth of understanding, and that depth was learned mindfulness. <clears throat> and that is a new book I'm working on, mm. and I'm in the midst of that now. I have a new book contract Learned Mindfulness, Achieving Authentic Integrity, and I wrote an article for Psychology Today, uh, actually maybe uh, two, three months ago, and it was sort of heralding 
and I didn't even know that this the, a new book was going to be emerge. About this. Emerge, yeah. but it is. Now, what that is for me is <clears throat> it's the actual kind of implementation of emotional intelligence in a mindful way. It's becoming mindful using emotion, using emotional intelligence, becoming as emotionally aware of your own self and of your own self with others in the moment, at the moment, uh, in all you do that you might think is important, that you might think is really not important. But everything we do when we're alive in this world is important. And so to be as consciously, consciously aware is really important. And this mindfulness sort of is a sharpening process, a focusing process to learn how to become as aware in a sensitive, nuanced way as possible. To what I'm, am I aware to the circumstances, the situation, to what I'm feeling? What, what, where is the focus of mindfulness? Well, bottom line is that uh, I guess it's a, a Latin phrase in toto, uh-huh. okay. the whole package, yeah, all the whole of it, package, yeah. everything. But because our minds have been created to only be, uh, to only experience ourselves and others and the world partially lim- with, lim- uh, with limits. And uh, one word epistemologically or through uh, the cognitive science is called perception. When we perceive, we perceive only features or aspects of things, not the whole Thing. As they yeah. say in Megillah, yeah. uh, we don't see the whole picture. We only see parts. So in order to approach becoming mindful, most uh, practices, and they call it a practice, like a training tool, most tools use what's called an, an anchor. Uh, in the original 2,000, 2,500 year tradition in uh, India, which is where also Buddhism uh, emerged, they used the the word, they didn't use the word anchor, but their word was alamba, alamba, alamba. They had that word, and we have the word anchor. Hmm. You need an anchor or a focal point to start with. Yeah. You need a hook, a hook. In modern terminology, people use that. What's the hook? So... To start with, you need a hook. And generally, um, in standard mindfulness practices, uh, people who want to just begin, just start out on the journey, because it's a really big journey, if they're doing it in the sort of traditional ways, they use breath, they're breathing. And that's something which is... uh, non-denominational, it's neutral, and it's very personal, doesn't cost anything, you have it right there, mm-hmm. and uh, it's uh, non-controversial, and you can work with it, and it's not harmful. So that's the hook to begin with, the breath. The breath. And noticing yeah. it, um, 
uh, noticing it uh, and, and I guess – and also recognizing that you're in the need of it. I mean part of this is emotional management, right? This is you starting to recognize what's happening to your body as you're hearing things, as you're experiencing life. That's right. Your sensations. And that will – that your hook there hooked me into saying that's where my learned mindfulness comes in because I link this all and reframe it in the making sense of emotion, innovating emotional intelligence model. And I kind of reframe it using emotion, my model of emotional intelligence. So I may start with the breath, but I link that to being aware of the first step in emotional intelligence or emotional awareness, being aware of sensation, emotion sensation, because that's the first level that emotion kind of emerges in your existence, in your being, as far as you are concerned, your sensation. Emotion first starts to materialize in sensation. Hmm. And once that occurs and once you become aware of it and comfortable with it and a little bit versed in it, the next phase is perception, emotion perception. That's a higher, more refined, more nuanced level upon which you start to label the sensation and you label the emotion in terms of what the what you believe or feel the emotion is. Mm. And at that point, the emotion becomes a feeling. I feel good, I feel bad, I feel happy, I feel sad, I feel attracted towards something, I feel um, repulsed towards something, uh, I want to avoid, I want to approach, I feel fearful, I feel joyful. That's the perceptual emotion perception. And then there's a third level in emotional intelligence that I call emotion conception. And that's fleshing the whole thing out with meaning. And what does it mean to you, for you? And why have you chosen to label that sensation, that particular feeling? And why have you chosen to give that feeling that meaning? And what is, remember when we talked about in and I said in toto, the whole yeah, package, yeah. the context. What do you think the context was that makes you feel joyful and start to label that experience as joyful rather than negatively? Yeah, monotonous or whatever. Monotonous. And most often it, it isn't the positive emotions that we need to work with. It's the negative, hmm. the negative feelings. Now talk – Oh, go ahead. Go ahead, Fred. Deal with fear, anger, and yeah. sorrow. Talk about need work. what this has to do with, because this is the other half of this, is that it helps us become authentic. So understanding our feelings at the sensate level, the perception level, the conception level, this actually starts to make us more whole. A more of an integrated being that can start to, I guess, make better choices in life and, and better reactions in life, responses to life. Precisely. Because without knowing, uh, without knowing our emotions in a, in a good to very good way, um, we're 
more incomplete than complete. Mm-hmm. And knowing your emotions and knowing why, for the most part, no one can be complete in this world, but to have a better grasp of things and to continuously improve and to continuously flesh out and understand yourself and how you change over the day, over the week, over time, over years, how you are alone, how you are with your wife, with your husband, with your children, with your employees, with your friends, how you are with the people you don't like. All of that can get keyed into your emotions and how you experience them and how you understand them, and that can improve your the word you use the word control over mm. them. I would mm. like to use the word how you manage, mm. how you manage them, and sort of um, remove from them the heat, energy, valence, and intensity that drives them, so that they control you rather than you manage them in an appropriate way, so that you are empowered to make more conscious, rational choices and direct your life in a more civilized, humane way. Yeah. We're speaking with, again with Dr. Frank, uh, Dr. Frank Ninavaji, who is a medical doctor, a psychiatrist, and an attending physician um, at Yale New Haven Hospital. He's also an assistant clinical professor of child psychiatry at Yale University School of Medicine's Child Study Center and the psychiatric director of the Devereux Glenn Home School in Washington, Connecticut. He also is the author of the book Making Sense of Emotion, Innovating Emotional Intelligence. Um, one interesting thing I'm noticing, Frank, this is this is kind of heady. It's heady stuff. but um, But at the very basis of it, it's 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 about management it's about us understanding ourselves understanding what we're feeling and how we label feelings and how it creates greater meaning in our life how did we ever survive without knowing what we know about emotional intelligence it be, because in a way it almost seems like we're becoming we're learning more about it, but we also seem to be more anxious as a people. Our kids are more stressed. We're medicating more and more of them. Um, are we actually learning more but implementing less of this? Well, I agree with everything you've said. <clears throat> um, I think because the needs are increasing, because the distress is increasing to levels that haven't really been there before, uh, we uh, as a people on Earth, as humanity, also are eliciting from ourselves the tools that we have intrinsic, that we have been given intrinsically to formulate solutions to these problems, treatments, therapies, and <clears throat> I'm not talking about the drugs. I think those are, you know, uh, inadequate and kind of uh, defense mechanism, uh, probably very uh, inoptimal, uh, very deleterious treatments to these emotional difficulties that we're experiencing. They're diversions. But um, intellectual, rational 
constructive uh, approaches such as those that try to understand ourselves as human beings and our, what composes us, what makes us tick, like uh, not only our thinking but our emotions and how the two of them can work in harmony when they're both raised to a level of meaning and meaningfulness and then understood and then given the, given the chance to assimilate with each other and become integrated over time. These tools and techniques now we have so that we can apply them to the greater distress that we see going on in our culture as human beings in 2018. Look at the uh, financial situation. Mm. You know, they say, who knew this would happen? The answer is, we all did. <laughs> Everyone was seeing this coming, and now it's come, and we're suffering. Everyone is suffering with anxiety, distress, and many people are suffering more than uh, others. Yeah, no, and you, it's so true. And it almost just seems like we need... We need deeper skills, like like I think you're teaching us here, um, to be able to go in deeper and and assimilate this mindfulness. To me, it's really hopeful to know that there's learned mindfulness. That can we eventually habitualize this? Can we take mindfulness that we have to be so consciously aware of, intentionally, you know, noticing things, does it eventually become habitual enough for us that we naturally default to that mindfulness? I think that's true. And I've made a point in the book, Making Sense of Emotion, and in the article, Learned Mindfulness, I, I talk about it too. But in the book, I really spend a lot of time on, on, what you're, on the answer to the question you just rose because I struggled with this for, for many, 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 many years. Hmm. And my solution was to explicate, make as explicit and clear as possible this, this differentiation. Um, we learn consciously with explicit, consciously aware learning and parts of the brain and that goes into what they call the part of the brain called the hippocampus. And that's where new memories that are conscious are learned. And then once they're learned, they get transferred to other parts of the brain that get stored as non-conscious memory, which in the old days it was called unconscious. Then it was called non-conscious. And some modern uh, cognitive scientists call it by two words, implicit or tacit. Hmm. Implicit knowledge or tacit knowledge. Now, <clears throat> little by little after you or after a person learns something in an explicit way, consciously, and they do it over and over and over again, it goes into the non-conscious parts of the mind, which really are about 90, 95% of the mind, and it becomes implicit and tacit, and that's the word you used, habitual. Yeah. Then we just know it, and we just do it by rote. 
you know, a very inappropriate example or analogy is learning how to ride a bicycle or drive a car. Yeah. That, that's procedural knowledge, and that works with different parts of the brain, and it's a different form of memory. But it, it gives you the idea. You learn something consciously, step by step, step by step. You make uh, mistakes but then you correct your mistakes, and then all of a sudden you do it without consciously thinking about what you're doing. And that's how this may work eventually. But certainly we can't go from totally active to totally passive. And that's another point. We have to remain, and I call it a self-activist, all our lives. We have, we be- have to be active. We have to be a self-activist and take active initiative for ourselves and everything around us. I love that term. That's what I love about what you do, Frank, because you create so many awesome new terms and words. Uh, a, a self-activist, we, I, I believe we are here to act and not be acted upon. And you're saying we have to constantly be um, – be leading this, actively leading our mindfulness, our emotional intelligence, and really, in the end, creating this authentic integrity. The name of the book is Making Sense of Emotion, Innovating Emotional Intelligence. Dr. Frank Ninavaji is its author. You can find out more um, about Frank by going to his blog on Psychology Today, and you can read all of his great work. Also, get the book, Making Sense of Emotion. It really is the deepest, uh, most insightful book I've ever read on the topic of emotional intelligence. And the neat thing, too, is it's, uh, it's from a, a child psychiatrist who can help you uh, along the way. Powerful stuff, folks. That's what we're doing, trying to help you be the good in the world, finding your true self. And uh, we're just here as a guide on the side. This is The Matt Townsend Show. Yeah, folks, it's time uh, to talk February babies. And apparently, if you have a baby in February, there's something special about your kid. Is that true? What about me? Is there something special about me? When's your, if when's, it's my kid? When were you born? Well, my kid was born in February. Yeah, no, nothing special about you. Ah. Sorry. Just super average like the rest of us. We're all just a bunch of averages. Except for Terry. Yeah, so what's the that's news? Great, thanks. Uh, so legend has, has it the February babies have been getting shorted a, a, a full birth month. Yeah. Ever since ancient Roman uh, Emperor Augustus Caesar stole a day from February to add it to August. Because, you know, it's his name. Thanks, Caesar. Yeah, thanks, Caesar. Nonetheless, studies show that uh, parents of February babies can rest assured that their leap year offspring as the story goes, have more to celebrate than fear because of their birth month. Studies suggest February babies may be taller and smarter Uh, compared to their summer-born peers. February babies are longer and heavier at birth. They grow to be taller by the time they turn seven, according to data on 21,000 boys and girls worldwide. Big kids similarly score higher on uh, neurocognitive tests, although it's important to note that not all scientists agree that February babies are taller. One even larger study indicates that summer babies are, in fact, the tallest. So depends on the study you want. Well, doesn't a lot of it just depend on the – I mean, what, are they supposed to be growing differently through the winter months? So you're having these spring babies. Yeah, who knows? I don't know. They tend to be more agreeable and more conscientious 
Some studies show that February-born individuals are have an increased risk for uh, schizophrenia, but other research uh, disputes that birth month has any impact on mental health risks. Yeah. I don't know what to believe about that. Yeah. So it says they are. Uh, they show studies show they're more agreeable and conscientious than summer babies, but they won't gloat about it, and that's just not their style. Yeah, <laughs> it's. I love this stuff. Do you? It has no bearing on anything other than there's a statistical anomaly. Well, it doesn't. This this seems to like follow similarly. You know your zodiac sign. Yeah, there's some of that here. Uh, they'll probably grow up to be famous or a police officer. Wow. He makes that sound negative, but he doesn't mean that negatively. It just no, That's it just the says, default. Terry and I, I think we were both told at a young age we would probably be civil servants. There's evidence that people born in February are more likely to have careers as artists, as one study of celebrities found that February babies are more likely to be famous. Burt Reynolds, Ashton Kutcher, Harry Styles all share February birthdays, hmm. which seems to suggest February babies also have great hair. I love how Burt Reynolds was the first name on there. Yeah. They even can play a cop on TV. February babies can always be one in real life. Oddly, people born in February are more likely to become traffic cops, according to studies. It, it, so- it, mm. it sounds like, by the way, Burt Reynolds, many would argue that's not his real hair. Some studies show there's an increased <laughs> risk for sleep problems. From February babies. Really? Okay. Uh, but they have a decreased risk for other serious diseases. Uh, let's see here. It says lower overall disease risk, higher disease protection, according to a massive study of nearly 2 million people. Specifically, February has a lower risk for cardiovascular, reproductive, respiratory, and neurological diseases and added protection against reproductive, respiratory, and neurological diseases. So they, wow. for some reason, they don't get sick in these specific ways. In they're other just, words, no wonder they're so tired. It's like they, yeah. So, yeah. What doesn't kill you makes you sleepier because they have that's, sleep problems. Yeah. What I think doesn't that's the song. Kill you makes you sleepier. Yeah. yeah. By the way, sleepier sounds like leapier. February babies. Ooh, how'd you like to be born on February 29th? Hate it. They're tall, conscientious. They'll be famous or a cop. They'll and have no. sleep problems, but they'll avoid maybe some serious diseases. And they'll have great hair. Yeah. You only age every other every four years, though, if you're born on February 29th. Do you, you know, know that? Sadly, it's not true. <laughs> you understand that, right? You're still going to age normally. Bummer. Hey, more fun straight ahead. This is the Matt Townsend Show. BYU Radio. Talk about good. On top of mind, even experts admit to falling short sometimes. I look at my list. I'm like, oh, darn it. You know, I didn't get any legumes today. Got to find a way to have some lentil soup or hummus or bean dip or something. Entertaining and informative. Top of Mind airs weekdays from 5 to 7 p.m. Eastern on BYU Radio. to the empty news with Jeffrey Liam Simpson. Jeff, do you have any lucky charms, anything that you have on your person for good luck or that maybe you you touch or rub? I, I notice you play with your fidget spinner quite a bit. Yeah, no, I, I don't. None of them I consider lucky. Okay. 
I mean, my Netflix account is the luckiest thing I've ever had. All right. Well, I, I think I think we can all agree that there are plenty of things that we touch or rub yeah. or hold on to, and we don't really know why. Right. 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 So, uh, how about Abe Lincoln's nose? Pardon. Apparently, <laughs> this is at the U.S. Excuse me, the uh, the state capitol. They are having to ask people to stop rubbing Abraham Lincoln's nose. Oh, because he's like a bronze statue. statue. He's, yeah, and they keep it all shiny. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so it's quite common, especially when the school kids come through. This is Paul Jacobs. Um, let's see. What's his responsibility? I think he's uh, in charge of looking over the statue. Yeah. Uh Unfortunately, the constant touching of Abe's nose has worn away the protective patina. 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 Yes. Yeah. Patina. So he's got like a gold shiner. Oh, my goodness. You've got it. It's not good. Uh, oh, and wow. now the state's keeper of the arts is considering putting a protective case around Abe. Josh Lofton with the U, uh, Utah Department of Heritage and Arts says covering the art is the last thing they want to do. Even a simple case would create a distance between the person looking at it and the art. Yeah. So Lofton is asking that patrons enjoy the art but do not touch it. Lofton finds it interesting that the only piece of art one uh, uh, that seems to have problems is Abe's nose and, incidentally, Brigham Young's finger. Oh, really? Yeah, because he's pointing. Which is also showing signs of wear. Who's got your nose? Who's got your nose? <laughs> They're just playing hide the nose with Abe Lincoln. What do you think? Do you think there's some... Uh... Uh, do you think uh, his nose is lucky? Well, it looks strange now because the statue, he's he's bronzed, but he's got this really gold, shiny nose. I don't know if it's lucky. It's not lucky for him, apparently. I mean, it, uh, he served him well. But now these kids are all grabbing his nose. Oh, boy. Leave leave Lincoln alone. Hey, trying to do what we can to help you uh, keep your nose to yourself. This is the Matt Townsend Show. You're listening to us right here on BYU Radio.